Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we're off. So I guess we should start by thanking Sean Ryder. Right? We should thank Sean Ryder, yeah. For bringing absolutely. us together. And um, what a just strange and magical coincidence. So I guess, first of all, we should talk about your upbringing yeah. in the fair city of Manchester, which is where my dad and all his side of the family are from. So I've been going there since I was a kid. Yeah. And there's, you even asked Sean, didn't you, at the Q&A that night, there's something about that city. There's a resilience and a character, isn't there? There's something about it, especially when I was growing up. I mean, I mean, growing up in Manchester when I grew up, kind of, I was born in 88, so I don't remember that much of the 80s, but going into certainly early to mid-90s when Manchester was at the centre of a, of a huge cultural movement that, did, did, that wasn't just confined to the UK. It was, it was a global thing, and Manchester became synonymous with a certain attitude and a certain type of creativity and... If you're a small kid, if you're five, six years old and, you know, a band, in my case, the band that was huge when I was in my, that age were Oasis and they were from two miles away down the road and they came from... Is that how close they were, really? Yeah, I'm wow. from Withenshaw and they're from Burnage. So, wow. so yeah, they're kind of only a couple of miles away and they were working class lads from... I'm from a semi kind of Irish immigrant background. My dad's family were... Irish immigrants and so similar to the Gallagher's and to the Riders. Similar to the Gallagher's and to the Riders, yeah. So when when you see people from exactly the same environment as you and from your background and from your 
your cultural kind of DNA, if you like. When you yeah. see people like that becoming, you know, in, in you know, in the, the Roses and and the Mondays, all the way to Oasis, and when Oasis kind of broke, ninety two, ninety three. When you see them, those bands becoming the biggest bands in the world, and not only that, but your football team's winning everything in sight as well. Oh, dude. I mean, I was a big United fan. I sort of dropped out of football around 2002. But I remember going to Old Trafford in the 90s. Yeah. And like I saw the Eric Cantona testimonial match there. Oh, yeah, of course. And yeah. At that point in time, that team was iconic, wasn't it? It was iconic. And they were there. They, not only the fact that they were winning things, but it was the way they were winning things. They were playing cavalier football. They were glamorous. They were exciting. And Cantona was the coolest man on the planet. Cantona probably still is. To <laughs> yeah, be fair yeah, to yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, no, no disrespect for the, for the you know three other billion men in the world, but I think he might still be having it. But no, I mean, when you see all that happening in the city that you grew up and in on your doorstep, you do kind of believe that anything is possible, and you kind of and you don't you don't feel that there is anything in your way to success or to or to making your mark on the world. And and that's what I said to Sean at the Q and A. The fact that that I I was born into that revival. Yeah. So I didn't know what it was like before then. But I've heard from my dad and I've heard from other people and Sean himself that Manchester before that was a kind of broken town. It, it the, the, the kind of huge deindustrialization that had happened up there meant that a lot of the traditional you know, working class trades had kind of disappeared. And, and you can see it now when you go around Manchester now, there's huge mill spaces and huge factory spaces that are, they're either apartments now that cost half a million quid or they're mm-hmm. office spaces or they're just empty. And you kind of have the ghosts of that industry and you have the ghosts of all those working men and those tradesmen and those craftsmen, but the actual trade and craft and industry has completely gone. And I, I kind of... That has a trickle-down negative effect on families as well, yeah, doesn't it? And it tears apart homes because the economy is obviously, you know, the foundation on which the whole world exists sadly that's the reality of it isn't it so once that is ripped out of the heart of a city like that yeah and so and so yeah but that's the kind of guilt that i mean i think we'll return to guilt quite a lot over the course of this chat because it's something that just keeps coming up in my life a lot (laughs) i had that kind of guilt that i was suddenly able to experience the resistance to that environment yeah. I, was, I was suddenly able to experience all the bands that came out of that I was able to enjoy Oasis and the and, and, and the Roses and the Mondays and the products of that deindustrialization and the products of that that kind of decaying landscape and all the people that had a backlash against that without having to actually experience the hardship that inspired it in the first place you know what I mean so of course yeah so it was it was it was an amazing time to be from Manchester and 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 yeah, it's it's still it's still where I live. It's still the place that I I uh, call home. And you know, there's a reason why I haven't moved to London. And I, and I think a lot of people are asking me. Why. I guess that's the assumed step, isn't it? Once you become successful in the entertainment industry, it's like, what you don't live in London? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That, that, that's exactly what it is. There is there is a kind of assumption that that's how you measure your success. If, yeah. if you can afford to live in London, then you must be successful. But I don't think, I don't think kind of you know symbols like that, or status symbols, or symbols of success, I've got anything to do with happiness, really. No, it's all about it's all about where I feel happiness, happiest, and and to, to me, happiness is people, not places, and and all the people that I 
I care about the most in the world, except for my girlfriend who does live in London. Right, right, right. So that may... So you've got the perfect excuse to come down and the place to stay should you need. Yeah, I mean, that, that, <laughs> that, may, that, may, that may alter some alter that dynamic in the future as we kind of progress in our relationship. I may find that... that you want to lay roots I, I want to together. lay roots, yeah. yeah. And, 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 but but as, far as, as far as, you know, I don't want to make friends with lots of famous people just because I, I don't feel as much in common with them as I feel with... All my mates from school, with. yeah. All, all, all my mates from school and all of, all of my family and my family friends—they're the people who I feel the greatest connection to. And people say, you know, the, the kind of show and the kind of uh, in inverted commas success that's come from that—has it changed your life? And it, well, it kind of has because it kind of has to. But that kind of implies that I had a life that I wanted to change mm-hmm. in the first place, and I, and I can remember. I can't remember being a kid and being an, on a council estate in Manchester and not having a lot of money and thinking I want all this to change. I was really happy. I had a really happy childhood. So, 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 being in Game of Thrones and having a career now that's that's you know on the kind of successful side of things, it, it it's changed my life in the ways I want to change it. But but everything that I loved about my previous life or, or kind of pre Game of Thrones. Every, all of that's kind of still in place, and I'm going to fight to keep it that way. And it hasn't changed you and who you are and what you want no. and your aspirations and your sense yeah. of self and what you place importance on. And I think so, yeah, because, because you have to examine the reasons why you get into any game in the first place, I think. Yeah. And I think, I think that if you... It's, it depends on what incentive you have for doing anything whether it's music or acting or whether it's media or broadcasting or writing or whatever you have to examine why you got into it in the first place and depending on what your ambition is and depending on the incentive and the and, and the end product and and the kind of goal that you have in mind you're gonna have to concede a certain amount of control over it for example if you want to be an actor because you really want to act and it's something that you're really good at and it's something that brings you a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment and and you feel that that's what you were put on this earth to do, then you can do that anywhere. You don't have to be in films and you don't have to be on telly or you don't even have to be working in commercial theatre. You can do that above pubs in Camden yeah. for, for no money at all, off a, off a profit share. Local theatre, community workshops, Yeah, all, like all that, of that yeah. stuff. You can do all that. If, if, if the reason you want to get into it is to act, all of that is available to you, and you can control that. You can, you can decide to get a group of mates together and put a play on for no money or, or, or share the profits or, or just do it for expenses or whatever. But if, you, if you're going into it to be famous or rich or successful in conventional terms then you've got no control over that really because there are so many other people who have to make those decisions and so many other people who you're in competition with for those parts and for those jobs so if the reason why you want to do something is is for fame which is such a strange i thought wanting fame before i achieved any level of fame or attained any level of fame i should say I thought that it was a strange thing to want then, and I think it's an even stranger thing to want now. Just just because of the effect it kind of has on your life. But if that is the reason why you want to do something, then you're on a hiding to nothing, really. Because, yeah. because, because you're never going to be famous enough. If that's what you want, there's always going to be somebody more famous, and there's always going to be somebody with, with more money. And because of the peaks and troughs of acting, there will be times when... 
you're out of work and somebody who you consider to be a rival is making certain films and you're thinking, why am I not doing that? Why why has he beat me to that? Why am I not currently Flavor of the Month? I, I, I want to be, I bet, I bet I had be Flavor of the Month in a while. Otherwise, you know, God knows what's going to happen. I'll probably never work again. If if you want to kind of expose yourself to those insecurities and you think you can handle it, that's fine. But I don't think many people can handle that level of insecurity. It's not a natural mindset to live your life in, is it? Not at all. But but if you find something that you do because you like it, then you can't lose because you can always do it. And so that was the incentive and the driving force for you from early on, was it? And just off the back of what you were saying earlier about being around this cultural revolution and yeah. these pop stars and this football team and Manchester as a whole showing you that dreams can be attained. Yeah. Was that the ignition that then sent you on your path to pursuing a creative it journey? Def- it definitely kind of laid the groundwork for it, but but because but because I, I I kind of grew up in a family that was staunchly working class and didn't have any aspirations to do anything in the arts and didn't really have much of an interest in the arts at all. I mean, I, we didn't go to the theatre or anything when I was a kid. We didn't even go to the cinema, really. We just watched telly. Right. And all of my inspiration when it comes to wanting to be an actor and all, all the people who I loved when I was a kid, it's all from telly. And, and I think... But that, actors as opposed to, say, presenters. It was actors, but it was a certain kind of actor. We, we, it was mainly, it was sitcoms, it was comedy that we watched. Right. Uh, what shows were always on rotation well uh, kind of Only Fools and Horses was always on rotation which is such a classic and and it's one of those programs that you watch as a kid I was thinking about this the other day actually about Only Fools and Horses and I think it's so interesting and and I was talking to people and they agreed with me that that when you're watching it and you're, you're a kid and you're watching Del Boy it's an interesting role model for a young man it to is. have as well, isn't it? It is. And you, he's like the quintessential old man. He is, but you, lo- you love Dale because he's silly and he's, yeah. and he's cheeky. And, and his he's, spirit is very youthful, isn't it? Yeah, his spirit is youthful and he's charismatic and, and he's all of those things that you kind of want to be. You want to be confident and you yeah. want to be a go-getter and you want to go into a, a space and own it and have loads of friends who respect you and everything. But the more you mature and the more you watch it through slightly different eyes and the more you get a kind of psychological grounding then suddenly Rodney becomes your favourite character I think the unsung hero the unsung hero and also 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 you find that Del is a bit of a manipulator of Rodney and a bit shallow and a bit vacuous a bit, and... bit shallow a bit vacuous really lays the, the guilt trip on Rodney all the time the emotional blackmail and you find that Rodney maybe could have made something of himself you find that you find yourself feeling so sorry for Rodney that, that he clearly had a bit of potential and Dell's always talking about his two GCEs. <laughs> but you do think he could have achieved much more than that. But Dell's influence and Dell's manipulation of him and Dell constantly telling him that he owes a debt to this family and you owe a debt to me and that's why you can't go and do other things. You start to think that Dell's maybe not the nice guy that you thought he was. There's something so quintessentially British and tragic about that concept, isn't there? Yeah. And that- kind of character setup, and I think so many British sitcoms of that era had that underlying like pathos yeah. to them didn't they they're just very layered and they and they they teach you about life but only as you're experiencing life yourself mm-hmm. it's it's like it's like they morph before your eyes from uh, silly knockabout sitcoms into life lessons but yeah, yeah. but 
you're only going to get... There should be a whole book written on that. There is. And, there, there is, yeah. Well, no, there should be. There should be, yeah. But there's... It, it's all about... It's whatever you want it to be at any point in your life. And I think that that's... That's the timeless appeal that's of it. The timeless appeal of it. But that's all. The, it's also the kind of nuance of it. And and it's like... The, well, The Simpsons does that. The Simpsons... Yeah. You watch old episodes of The Simpsons now that you watched when you were a kid and you appreciated them on one level when you were a kid. You watch them now... And they've kind of turned into something else. They've turned into like philosophical arguments about what the nature of family is and what the nature of a human being is and, and all of that stuff. And without, without itself changing, different people at different stages of their own development can find different things in it. And it was those performances. When, you, when I was a kid and I just used to really laugh at Del Boy or Basil Fawlty or oh. any of these characters, I, I, I used to laugh at them before I really knew what acting was, before I knew that it was performance, and certainly before I matured a bit and saw just exactly what they were doing and how nuanced these performances were and just how much thought went into it and the psychological and emotional validity of all of these characters. I didn't know anything about that. I just knew that they made me laugh. And part of it was me just going, I want to be able to make somebody feel the way they're making me feel right now. So that was the kind of inspiration really. And and, and leading in into the, the, the Manchester thing still, that took on a whole new level in I think ninety eight when the first series of the Royal Family came out in nineteen ninety eight. Of course. The first proper northern mainstream big time sitcom, right? Yeah. Up until then it had been largely southern London centric kind yeah. of and even and even even the kind of northern ones uh of which they of which there were there were, you know, quite a few. They were written from a certain perspective of, let's use these people as novelty items. Stock characters. Stock and, characters, yeah. yeah, that we can make caricatures out of and laugh at. But because the subject matter of the royal family was exactly the same as the people making the royal family, they knew that they, knew that they weren't going to have to uh, compromise any of that stuff. They weren't going to have somebody in their ear saying, maybe if you can make Jim a little bit more like this. They say, no, you can't tell us that because we live among these characters. That's based on my dad. That's based on my mum. And therefore, we want to be give those characters the respect they deserve because we love the real-life versions of them. So we want to paint accurate portrayals in order to do those real-life characters justice. And I think, I think that, that that was a real turning point. And do you know what? I still watch The Royal Family now. Uh, after working in telly and film for eight years, and I still can't work out some of those edits. Right. Still can't work them out. Like, I, st- I still can't work out, because it was single camera. It wasn't a studio sitcom. They were filming single camera, turning around, you know, doing different sizes on each, on each setup. And you do think, but it just feels like an, a half an hour of life. I just don't understand. And, and, and the, the pitch of the energy of the performances is, is consistent all the way through. People just, it just looks like people are talking to people. And that's, that's something that you should be used to after working in and you film, yeah, you spot. film drama because you do notice edit points sometimes yeah. and, you, and you do look at it and think, oh, I wonder what they cut out there. There's a slight atmosphere change there. I can see there's a little bit of ADR there where they've had to bridge that gap between that cut and those two takes. But with the royal family... Even now, I, I marvel at just how seamless it is. It, it really is like it's like fly on the wall. I just I just can't still can't understand how they did it. So that was an inspiration as well. That 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 was that that, that led me to believe that oh, if I want to be an actor and I want to be a 
uh, a comedy actor and somebody who worked in that world, I didn't have to change myself too much. Not necessarily. It's nice to be able to play, you know, Regency princes and stuff or whatever you want to play. But uh, I remember, I remember once I was, I was working with uh, Matt Smith on a film a couple of years ago, and we were talking about this thing, and and he'd read it. I think I think he'd read that Mark Rylance had said it in an interview once. And it really stuck with me ever since. I'd never heard the phrase before, but Mark Rylance and, uh, had, had uh, reinforced this idea of you are enough. You are enough. You're interesting enough. You don't need to put too much on. You don't need to have too many affectations as an actor. You don't need to put all these layers on to disguise yourself, necessarily. You don't need to go full Nick Cage. You don't have to do... You don't necessarily... <laughs> I mean, it works for Nick Cage. But, but you don't necessarily have to do that. And, and, and with the Royal Family, that was something where I thought, oh... My background and my family unit and how I feel about them, that could come in handy one day. And it's not necessarily, necessarily about having to get rid of that. It's, you can keep that and because there is a market for it. I, I, because you grow up in any environment and you, you grow up with a certain group of people, a certain class of people, they're not interesting to you because you see them every single day. So it's other people that are interesting. Absolutely, yeah. It's other people that are interesting. So you, so you forget just how... Magical and special. Magical and special and epic. Yeah. And yeah, poetic yeah. a lot of your everyday life is because you think, oh, I don't want to watch a programme about... Well, you become desensitised to it, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Unaware. I don't want to watch a programme about working class people from Manchester because I see them every day. I want escapism. It's only when you watch it and you watch it done well that you realise, I oh, know they've reminded me of just how dramatic my life is. And that was another. That was another kind of reinforcing the idea that, yeah, kind of everybody, everybody's everyday life has got so much in it, and you're worth so much as a person that if you're able to harness your own USP and not want to get rid of everything, then it, then there is a kind of blueprint for success there. Did you learn that yourself? Because obviously, you're saying you heard this quote only a few years ago when you were already well on your way. Did you come to that realisation or have you sort of just been slowly learning over the years that you've been actually in the industry? I've been incrementally learning that, but I think that that, <clears throat> that phrase just really kind of sums it up. Most, yeah. most, I, I, and I think that's what, that's what poetry is and that's what, that's what the great writers do. If you, if you, if you look at the great love songs, like if you look at Yesterday, which is a great love song, the beauty of that is everybody's felt those things, but feeling them emotionally and using your intellect to put them into words, that's where the skill comes in of poetry. And it's the same with Shakespeare. The reason why Shakespeare still impacts on so many people is because it is the thought crystallised. It's these thoughts that swim around your mind. And you just, you, you, it's like trying to swat a fly sometimes. You almost get them and then they just slip away. And you can never really face them because you can never really come to terms with them in terms of words and in terms of clear thought because they're kind of intangible. And, and the, great, the great writing and that phrase in particular is about, yeah, that's what I've been thinking. Yeah, but I just, that's I, me. I just, that is me and that's what I believe. But now I've got a handy little phrase in my pocket that I can used to illustrate it to people. It's amazing, isn't it? The actual moment of 
triumph that a writer must go through when they nail that. I think so. But That's I, a trip, isn't it? I, I think it must be. It must be such an exhilarating moment. But I think that a lot of artists, they kind of get crushed under the weight of that as well. Yeah. And then they're forever chasing it. And... They're forever chasing it. And that's why I think Paul McCartney now, if you believe what Paul McCartney says about the Beatles, now they never did anything on purpose. They asked Paul McCartney about, well, what about this line? So that was just an accident. We didn't really think about that. Oh, what about this chord? Yeah, that was an accident. I played it wrong. And then that stayed in. That, none of those, well, half of those probably aren't true. It's just a way of demythologizing yourself. Yeah. And deflecting that hype. Yeah, yeah, because... So because, you can try and go about living a normal life, quote-unquote. Because he, because because the Beatles in general, they're such... We're talking about fame and the kind of effects that fame can have on you and how to maintain something that's true about yourself in the face of fame. The Beatles are such a, fa- a fascinating study of that, I think, that they were as famous as it's really possible to get. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, they were the first pop band, weren't they? They, they, they sort of invented popular culture, popular music. They kind of... They kind of Came up with a blueprint for it, but probably lasted seven years famous. Then wanted out. Yeah. They all wanted out. Well, you watch, um, ha, 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 what's the film? A Hard Day's Night. Yeah. And that's super early on. Yeah, exactly. And even in that, they're sort of parodying and sending up the idea of fame. And you can already see then that they're finding it tiring. Exactly. Yeah. And, and all of the pressure that was on them led to all of them at one point or another falling out with each other. Yeah. And I think that that's... I think it's managed a lot better now, I have to say, that, that you get a band like One Direction and they, they, uh, there is a kind of steady stream of product and a steady stream of, of, of gigs and stuff, but they, they do kind of, they kind of bleed it out. So, so the Beatles re- recorded probably an album and about five singles a year. That kind of doesn't happen now because I think the reason why that blueprint is still referred to is that it was just a, a, an incredibly intense seven-year period that broke them. Yeah. And, and you look at bands like, say, Guns N' Roses is another great example. Any bands that are, like, at the top of the mountain. Yeah. And obviously the company and the people around them want more, more shows, more songs. Exactly, yeah. More product. So yeah. they feel like they have to do that to keep up because they don't want that fire to die down. Yeah. And, that, and, and the Beatles, they often said, and John Lennon said, and Paul McCartney probably agreed, was... That when they got to Pepper and when they got to uh, the White Album and Magical Mystery Tour, it was kind of getting so far away from what they loved about being in the band in the first place. It was so far away from the enjoyment they got when they were four lads in a in a cellar in Liverpool playing rock and roll that they had to return to that for the last two albums because they had to get in touch with what they loved about it. And I, I think I think anybody who starts anything as a career goes on their first steps of the career. That's the last time they'll ever really enjoy it, I think. Yeah. Well, I was speaking to Tom Morello this morning. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, I've worked with Johnny Cash, Bruce Springsteen, all these incredible people over the years, Chris Cornell. But still his favorite record that he made was the first Rage Against the Machine album because it was just four young kids yeah. that had this idea of combining certain genres of music together with a political message. And they were just fueled by their own passion yeah. and fury and fire. Yeah. And then the minute, boom, that album's everywhere, it's like, oh man, now we're the centre of attention and we have to be this politicised oh, spokespeople of a generation. Completely. When I, was at, when I, when I did my, my drama school training, which was three years worth of training... Was that in Manchester as well? I was well? at Manchester, yeah. Yeah, Manchester Metropolitan University, which is a great school and I had a great time there. 
I look back on that now and thinking, God, I really, I, I still love acting. I still love the final product and I love the process and and I love getting to do it on a, a slightly more exposed scale, of course. But it was pure. But you then. do think it was pure, and I and I and I wasn't. I was doing it because I really properly loved it, and there was no reward for doing it. I was just doing it because I didn't want to do anything else. And and I think it's because y- you react to the consequence of failure rising. So when you're performing at drama school or you're, or you're a band performing in a pub to 30 people and nobody knows you, if you have a bad gig or if, or if, or if the way that you're trying to perform goes badly, the consequences are so low because there's only 30 people there anyway and half of the audience are probably your friends. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. You're just trying things. You yeah, can, let's just try it. If you it can, don't work, you fine. Can, you're completely unselfconscious, but yeah. you, you, get, you get in front of a camera on an HBO set with, with not only some of the greatest actors of, of our generation, but also, you know, craftsmen in terms of in terms of the camera people, the lighting people, the directors who are amazing, all the money that's gone into it, all the investment of time and energy of the writers and the producers. You go on there and you suddenly think there's much more consequence now. The stakes are high. The stakes are high and I really have to justify all of these people's faith in me. And I think I think that Does there come a lot of pressure on yourself with that? I think not. I think it. I guess it potentially could. If there is any pressure on me or anybody else in the show in terms of actors, it's pressure that we place pressure that we place on ourselves because we want to be as good as everybody else around us. David and Downey were our showrunners and ultimately our bosses, and our, our other producers, Bernie Caulfield and Chris Newman, they create a lovely, wonderful family atmosphere. It's not. It's not that there's any that they're breathing down your shoulder saying you better get this one right because you're yeah, costing yeah. us so much money. It's not about that. <laughs> they know that you can't exactly tapping the watch. They know that you can't perform under those pressured conditions. So, so you often find that that David and Dan when they're on set, they're the most relaxed guys on the set. And in between takes, they'll come and talk to you and they'll talk about other stuff. They'll talk about sport. They'll talk about music. Because they're setting the tone. They're setting the tone. And an and atmosphere on sets like that when there's so many people, it does, it does dribble from the top down. So it's, it's not any pressure that they're putting on us on the day. It's just you're in front of the camera and it's your turn. And you see the way that the take went of somebody else's coverage before you got on. You think, that was really good. And all of these camera guys are so great. The way that this director's directed that shot so the camera pans there, that's going to look amazing. I don't want the weak link in this whole operation to be me. And I, I, and I, think, I think the test of whether you want to be professional or not, or whether to see yourself as professional or not, is can you handle that pressure? Some people just say, can't handle it. I'm perfectly happy to do this on a slightly reduced scale and do it, do it for the fun of it, but I just can't handle this. And other people thrive on it. Other people see that as the place that they have to get to. They say, well, other people, are, 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 I, I see it as a quilt. Other people are sewing their patch of this quilt and everybody else's patch is exquisite. So our mind better be good as well. And they see that as a, as a kind of inspirational thing. I went to school with, I don't know whether you know the actress, Vanessa Kirby. Yes. Um, and I watched her pretty much first ever performance. It was my girlfriend at the time directed her in it. Yeah. And she was fantastic and she just blew me away. And I was like, she's going places. And then we sort of lost touch. And then I turned on BBC One Christmas and it's Great Expectations. And yeah. she's in that. And I was like, oh my God. And then obviously The Crown. And now she's in Mission Impossible. And I saw her about nine to ten months ago. 
and she just she's one of those people who very much thrives off the challenge and, yeah. and that kind of environment and it's it's amazing to i guess see the because you obviously joined game of thrones right three months is that right fresh out of acting school fresh out yeah well i, I auditioned while i was still there wow well, let's let's go back in a second and talk about that. But just that journey that obviously you're on to try and you know become better at your craft. You don't really know if you can handle, as you say, all these other external things that are going on inside your head, such as pressure, expectation, things like that. You don't know till you're in it, do you? No. And it's only once you're in it that you learn. Okay, I can handle this, or actually, I can't. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's the same. It, it's it's. I, I went to Disneyland. A couple of months ago. <laughs> romantic getaway, was it? It was a romantic yeah, getaway, yeah. yeah. The old dog. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh and and I have never been I've never been a I've never been a fan of roller coasters and things like that. I've life. never been on one in my life. I've always been I've always been really apprehensive about them. And I and I was dragged on a couple because there was no queue because we were letting after after it closed and there was no there was no queue, so we went on I think it was Aerosmith. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Love in an elevator, Paris. something yeah. like that. Yeah. Which is which is a, a crazy ride, <laughs> and I'd never would have gone on it a million years in any other circumstance. But I went on it, and I thought, I'm glad I went on that because I'm so exhilarated now that I kind of never would have forgiven myself if I hadn't. And I and I think I see these kind of tests of that. It's a test of your nerve. Yeah. But if you do it, you 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 really can feel rewarded, or say I'm never going to go on roller coasters again. But you do find out what your relationship with risk is, mm. and, if it, and what you as a character are built of and made of. Yeah, I, I think. Mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, and it's, it's not to say that somebody who can't handle the pressure or the thrill isn't, or is sorry in any way inferior to the people that can. No, it's not just at all. people have different motives and different characteristics, don't they? Oh, completely. Yeah, it's it's you know, there are as many different types of people as there are people, and uh, and I. As soon as I got the the gig, as soon as I got Game of Thrones, and as soon as it, it, there wasn't a very long period of elation, really, I was happy to get my first job. But of course, back in season one, we didn't really know what it was going to become. Why? Well, yeah, and uh, we it didn't really blow up till I'd say season three, right? In no, terms of that world, in terms of like a glo- <gasps> global thing, yeah, exactly. And but when I when I got the the audition for it, it was my first ever audition. And it was just more a case of wanting to do a good job for my agent. Once again, I just signed with my agent, and it was about rewarding her faith in me as well. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about getting it, just because I thought I thought the chances of getting your first one are, are a bit. The chances of getting that are a bit outlandish, and it's an HBO thing. And I, I, I'd never, I didn't know about Game of Thrones, the books. I didn't know about that world, but I knew HBO uh, for being a, a kind of hallmark of everything that good telly is. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were Sopranos, right? They were Sopranos. Which I guess was the first great modern television show. Completely, yeah. And that's that set the, the template for so many that came after it. Yeah. And that was that was the first time that, that people started, to, not the first time, but the first time in recent memory where the tipping point happened, where people started to believe in TV. Yeah, as a genuine competitor with cinema. As a, not only not only as a competitor with cinema, but also a much more suitable place for certain material than cinema. Because if you think about it, our books are however many hundred pages. If we tried to make a film out of each one of those books, the way that Lord of the Rings tried to make a film out of each one of those books, 
then it wouldn't be worth it because trying to... You lose so much. It's hard enough to, to compress that, that into 10 hours. Trying to compress it into two hours, you just lose everything about what made George's books great in terms of the detail, the development of all these characters, how rich this landscape is. It'd be condensed beyond recognition. Well, my mate upstairs, who's a big fan of the show and the books, he was telling me that in the books, the stuff that Samwell's dad does to him yeah. is so dark and yeah. horrific yeah. and they go into so much more detail in the books. Yeah, yeah, it, it's... It, the, the scene that you auditioned for, just to sort of jump around real quick, that was the scene where you're on the wall with Jon Snow and the character's describing basically why he's there and yeah. what happened to him and his dad basically said, look, you need to fuck off for one of the yeah, better exactly. phrase and I'm going to renounce you as my son and heir and if you ever try and come back I'm going to kill you yeah. and make it look like a hunting accident that was the one yeah so that's the audition scene right there that was the audition scene and, and I think the reason why they picked that one also because it was a nice it was a nice sized speech and that, that scene between John and Sam has got a lot of peaks and troughs to it and it was also the start of their chemistry as yep. two characters together and but I think the reason the, the main reason why that was picked as an audition piece was because it justifies every single thing about Sam. Absolutely, he, dude. He has a couple of scenes before that. He has a couple of scenes where he first arrives at Castle Black and he's beaten up and then 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 I don't know if he has another scene after that. He may do, but but he's 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 a, a mystery bag at the start because nobody knows why he's there. Nobody knows why he's at Castle Black. Why have you joined this group of warriors when you clearly can't fight? You can't really see what you. This is so out of your environment. Nobody could really understand what he was doing there. And it's only when he explains to John how impossible his life is, and he's in he's in a completely impossible situation that that he cannot win, and he's out of his depth again. He's a complete outsider again. There's not a single shred of comfort for him left anywhere in the world. That's when you start to, to realise the emotional baggage that this guy carries around with him all the time. And did you get all of that just from the sample of the script that you got for the audition, having not known the book and the storylines? Did yeah. you have any of that background information or did you just go off that speech right there? I, I absolutely of went off that, yeah. Inform your own interpretation. Yeah, I, I think you kind of have to do that as an actor because... Because you have to assume that the audience don't know any of that either. Of course. The, you, you, know, you can't send a handout through the post of everybody who's going to watch the show and say, this is this character. Yeah, yeah. They're introduced to characters through expositional scenes like that. So I thought, I thought the writing was so on point, the characters were so clearly delineated and clearly drawn, vividly drawn, that in a speech like that, it can tell you pretty much everything you need to know about a character. And... and and his, his backstory and his motivations and the scars that he carries around. And I think, and, and that continues all the way through Game of Thrones as Sam's story arc. He's always an outsider. Yeah. He was an outsider from the day he was born. He was an outsider at home because his father was... was uh, Horrible. Horrible, <laughs> eh? But also kind of put a lot of, put a lot of importance behind... Uh, physical attributes and he was a warmonger and he thought that nothing could be solved if it couldn't be solved with violence and didn't have much time for Sam's folly of academia and and the power of knowledge and the power of reading and maybe maybe not all uh, situations have to be resolved with violence maybe we can find other ways it's a very progressive attitude 
The, the, well, he's punk rock. He's comp- yeah, he's, he absolutely in is. In scene uh, seven, when he's with all the old guys in the Citadel, yeah. and they're all twiddling their thumbs and they don't want to believe whatever rumblings they're hearing, and he's like, look, guys, like I've, I've seen this stuff. I know it's coming. Yeah. Let me get access to this material so I can actually put myself to work. And they're going, no, no. So he just gets in there and does it anyway. And it is. It's very defiant. Yeah, absolutely defiant. And and he's he's always on the outside of everybody else's thinking. So he was outside of everybody's thinking at home. Gets to Castle Black where it's kind of the same. They didn't see any youth stream either. He had to he has to appeal to them about the about the importance of books and and trying to get them to believe him when he says he's seen White Walkers beyond the wall. He's an outsider there. He eventually gets posted to the Citadel to be with Maesters, the very seat of academia and the very seat of learning. Where he thought he'd be right at home. Where right? he thought he'd be right at home, where he thought that these are the people who are going to understand and appreciate my my uh, firm belief that books and learning and knowledge are very powerful weapons. Turns out they didn't either because they just want an easy life for themselves and they don't want to get involved with anything. Though, so, so throughout the story, he's constantly being put in situations and constantly hoping that he's going to find the place where he's comfortable and never getting there. Always an outsider, always shunned and always ridiculed. And I think by the end of it, he he decides that he doesn't want to be really accepted anywhere. He doesn't want to be accepted in any institution because institutions have, have chewed him up and spat him out since the day he was born. The, 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 the patriarchal institution in Castle Black and then the Citadel, none of them want him. None of them are interested in him. So then he, he, then he, he sees that the only place he's really comfortable is with Gilly and baby Sam. And, you know, he wants to stand by the side of Jon Snow and do things the Jon Snow way because he believes in Jon Snow as well. And I think that I think that there's a lesson to be learned in that as well. That I think I've said it before, but the way I the way I'd sum it up is Sam learns that it's easier to be, you know, it is better to be loved by three people than accepted by hundreds of people. Amen. Yeah. Especially in today's world, it's funny when whenever I meet someone who doesn't watch or claims to not like Game of Thrones, it's yeah. like oh, I don't like that fantasy stuff, and I'm like, mate. The thing with that show, as with Lord of the Rings as well, is beneath the dragons and the fire and the White Walkers and all of that is Shakespearean levels of betrayal. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, political double-crossing and all of that, but also these great stories of relationships and friendships. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's... it's, There's... And human struggle and triumph and... Well, I think that's exactly exactly what it is. It is It is about all of those quite often internalized motivations in people and and how you react to the world at large and, and how you try and find your place in it, whether your place is at the top, you, you believe that you should be ruling, or you believe, like Sam, that that you want to be in the background and you, and, and you, think, you think you can make a difference, but you don't necessarily have to be sitting on an iron throne to do it. You can just, you can just be, you know, dealing with things of great importance in your own low-key way whatever that is then it deals with all of those it deals with all of those ambitions and all of those kind of psychological hurdles that people have to get over it's it's a it's a really detailed piece of work and from just a writing standpoint forget all the set design and the costumes and all of that just the the characterization the the storylines the themes i mean they're, they're they're kind of broad they're kind of broad brushstrokes in terms of all of these different characters, they all, over the course of 10 episodes, which isn't long, 
They have to finish the season at a different point than they started the season. And they have to have peaks and troughs along the way. And they all have to be on their individual journeys and dealing with their individual struggles. It may be part of the common good or the common bad, whichever side they're on, but they're all having to deal with their own boundaries and their own their own obstacles and everything that they need to get there. But they're the kind of broad strokes and the framework of a season. But just in terms of the dialogue, the dialogue that I find, I find really breathtaking from a, from a writing point of view. I mean, we go back to, we go back to kind of the old sitcom, something like Dad's Army, which is, which is something that I love as well. That's, uh, that's along the same lines as Game of Thrones on a slightly smaller scale because you've only got seven or eight characters in that. But you watch Dad's Army and you look at these characters in that lineup and you think they're all different. They're all, they all have their own idiosyncrasies and their own, their own thoughts and feelings. But also, none of them would ever say a line that any of the others could say. I think that's, that, that, that's, such, that's such an amazing discipline from a writing point of view. And in Game of Thrones, we have it with 200 characters. Yeah. I mean, someone like the Hound. Yeah. Sam couldn't say a Hound line. <laughs> and, and, and the Hound would, would sound strange saying a Sam line or a Tyrion line or, I mean, any, or, or, or a Joffrey line. The, the, the dialogue doesn't... Robert Baratheon had some great Some amazing dialogue. lines, yeah. But, but, but they, were, they were amazing because they were symbolic of his internal struggle. And so unique. So unique to that one character. Nobody, yeah. nobody else, contextually... Nobody else could say any of those lines with the same weight because because the characters are so detailed, their backstories are so explored and they're so fleshed out. When anybody says anything, you know exactly what that means to them. It's, it's the same way that have you ever had a really good mate? My nephew is uh, is somebody I'll use as an example of this. My nephew is only four years younger than I am. But I we we we've we've grown up together. He was a kind of surrogate brother because my sister was a lot older. So I didn't feel like I had a sister relationship, but I had this nephew who was like a brother and we've grown up together. And now I find every single thing that he says funny. Right. I think he's the funniest. <laughs> I, I, I've known comics. I've worked with, with comedians and, and comedy writers and comedy directors for the last eight years on and off. I don't think anybody's as funny as my nephew. I think everybody has that one friend, don't they? That is just so naturally funny and yeah. unaware of how funny they are and that's what makes them so funny exactly it? and I introduce them to people and they're like yeah he's funny but he's not as funny as you made out he was and I think well that's because contextually you don't know him like I do yeah, you, you've got all that background knowledge I've got all the background knowledge and and that's why I know what, exactly what he means when he says that, that thing that he said in the car about McDonald's I know exactly what he means when he says that and it's the same way that that in, and to create that out of thin air is yeah, such it, a skill, isn't in it? In something like Game of Thrones, where there's so many characters and it has so much scope to it, to establish all of that detail, to establish all of these motives and all of this very delicate psychological makeup in somebody like Cersei, for example. Oh, incredible. Who I, who I think he's one of the great characters of, of, what a, of modern What an amazing drama. actress as well. Incredible performance, yeah. Incredible performance. She, both a combination of, of Lena and the writing whatever she says, she's not just saying it for any, for no reason at all. She's saying it because her dialogue is a byproduct of every bit of pain that she feels and every bit of anger that she feels. 
and 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 that's what I mean about context. You have to you have to do all of that work in order to make what these characters are saying worth saying. I think the Game of Thrones is is so good at that because we've not got as I said we've not got long with these characters. I think that when when David and Dan started plotting a new season out, <clears throat> they must have thought of it purely mathematically at first, in terms of right we've got. What do we need to achieve by the end of it? Especially yeah. in the later seasons, because characters that were together at the start, their, their storylines diverge. And, and, and suddenly now, you know, Arya's got her own story and Sansa's got her own story and, and Sam's got his own story for a while. So it's not about writing these clusters of characters. They have to find a way to make every single one of these characters have a journey that's worth watching. And they've got 10 hours... They've got this many characters. How do we mathematically divide this time up so that we spend enough time with each of these characters to make it worth watching them again? Yeah. And so I, the audience is invested. Yeah. And the payoff is there. Yeah. And, and, and just as actors, they're, they're very sensitive to that. And I think it's season six, Sam's only in three, three uh, episodes of season six. But one of those episodes is a big kind of 15, 20 minute chunk in the middle of one of those episodes where he gets to go back to Horn Hill. Yeah, and, gets to and you've that, got the meal where it's revealed all that she's of that a wildling. And... So from, from the carriage right to them leaving Horn Hill, that's like a 15, 20 minute section. And you, and, and, and That's really when you learn the true nature of that father's yeah. horrendous side, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's when Sam, once again, everything about Sam is put into context. You can see why... He's had all of the self-belief crushed out of him. Yeah. You can see why he's broken inside so much. Just because you spent 10 minutes in the presence of them both. You saw how Sam just just retreats back into his shell. No matter what he's achieved. He's killed a white walker. He's killed a white walker. (laughs) But he's he's fallen in love as well. And he's taken on the mantle of parenthood. He's achieved a lot and overcome so many boundaries that you never thought he would. But when he's back in that around that table with his father that back to square one doesn't account for anything doesn't mean anything again there's a lesson there with toxic relationships isn't there yeah and people who allow themselves to be put down and treated badly because of that oh let's slip back into old routines that's the nature of this exactly exactly because because they they it's all about exerting control yeah abusive relationships in any in any degree whether they be uh, kind of marriages or, or relationship with parents and children it's all about control yeah and or in the workplace or, or wherever, any, yeah. any of yeah, that yeah. stuff. And so, and so that's, that's luckily for Sam, he did have that moment where he caught himself retreating back into that shell and decided that he wasn't like that anymore and decides to, to seize the moment and, and grab take, the sword, grab and, do the sword one. and get out of there. So it's ultimately, <laughs> it's a redemptive thing, but I think yeah. he had to, he had to go back and access a lot of those feelings, access a lot of those emotions in order to realize that there is some distance from that now yeah. and he's not like that anymore and and ultimately he comes out of that on top he has a victory in his own way and they get burnt exactly yeah so. of, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> which which is no more than they deserve but but well, but even though that even though that was only one of my three bits in that season i wouldn't have swapped it for the world i would rather have that than pop up in the background in in, in, in kind of, of nine, there, nine yeah. of the ten episodes. I would much rather have that. And that's where they're so sensitive as writers. Do they, they pay you by episode, though? I can't possibly <laughs> say. <laughs> but they, they have... Um, they're very good at giving everybody... 
enough like that. And even even if it's even if it's not a lot in terms of quantity, in terms of quality, they will always make sure that you're happy. And and I think that that that's how they make it feel like a collaboration. That's how they make everybody feel valued, and how they make everybody feel that we're all part of this amazing thing. And you are important. And 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 I've been out with I've been out with. Uh, David Benioff and Dan Weiss a few times and a couple of other actors and maybe sometimes there'll be uh, other other members of the crew there and 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 certain people there who are who are runners and things and 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 we all go out together and we all socialize together and when somebody says what do you do David Benioff or Dan they never say well we're the producer of the show and they're the actors and this person's a AD or they, they always say we work together nice and when I hear them say we work together, I think, oh yeah, these are good guys. Yeah, and rare, they, isn't it? Very rare. And these are the guys that know how important every single part of this machine is. And and as if I needed another reason to like those guys, when I heard them say that, I thought, yeah, these are really these they they really value people, and they really know that every single cog in this machine is is worth something. But that's how everybody should think. Cause Absolutely. Because it's, yeah. it, it's the truth. And I think as as I've been thinking about this because the show's ended. We finished filming a couple of months ago. It's been such a happy time. Bittersweet, is it, to come very, to an end? Very bittersweet, very bittersweet, uh, because we've made so many friends. We've made friends with other actors and, and, and David and Dan. Very rarely that you can relate to bosses in the same way that we've related to them. And, you know, we now go forward and, and expect to make those friends for life on every job that we do. And it's probably not going to be like that. It's almost certainly not going to be like that. But I, I think... had a similar conversation with Thomas Turgus about oh, yeah. the whole This Is England experience. Yeah, of course. And he said, you know, he grew up in that world with those people yeah. and they're like family to him. And it's such, I think, a unique... Because there's, there's the idea of you're crafting and you're creating a great product, but yeah. obviously as well, you want to enjoy the process. Not of just of creating the characters, but of the actual filmmaking experience. Yeah. And it... for something like that, I mean, that's the benchmark it has to be, isn't it? Of yeah. Five out of five, best experience ever. It has to be. It has to be. And, you know, I, I'm sure that, that we'll all learn eventually to not, to not chase that anymore and to know how special that was. That's why, that's why I'm kind of not that keen on rushing into something just yet. I think, yeah, yeah. I, I think that when, I when, that when you come out of that bubble and when you, when you come out of that machine that's been eight years long... I think I think to to rush into something else and make out like that you're trying to continue something you're trying to you're trying to make the gap as small as possible bridge the gap as quickly as you can and continue with something else I there's something about me that feels that that cheapens it slightly yeah and I I just feel that that you need to that you need to reflect well, process a bit. as well right and yeah. decompress and exactly. reflect and appreciate yeah as I, as I said to my girlfriend shortly after, now is not a time to shine, now is a time to reflect, and they're basically the same thing. There you go. Yeah, so, <laughs> so we, uh, we, it's, been, it's been a brilliant time. And you're saying goodbye to Sam as well. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the other breakup element of it, isn't it? It's, it's a real breakup. someone you've lived with for, is it eight years, you Eight said? years, yeah. and, and, and you get to... You get to you, because these characters are so vivid... And 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 by the especially by you know, season six seven you feel that you know them so well you do feel that they exist outside of you, and you feel that they exist outside of the show. Like in between the end of, say season six and the start of season seven, you completely get the impression that they've been doing stuff. 
it's not like it's not like the light goes out on them and then they disappear. Then we come back at the start of season seven and we pick up where we left off. They've all progressed in between seasons, but but you feel that you know them as people so well that you can get a sense of their existence outside of you. They're a completely separate entity. And when you play Sam or when you play any of these characters, it's like you're just visiting them again. And you're going into their skin, and you're kind of channeling them. Hello, old friend. Hello, old friend. Yeah. Exactly. And it's nice to it's nice to get back in touch with them like that. And you do feel that that while you're playing him for that season, you do feel that you get to shoulder some of his pain for a while. It's like I'll take it away from you, and I'll put this skin on. And I know this skin hurts, and I know that this skin is, uh, you know brings you a lot of misery. But while we're filming this, I'll take it on. And I'll experience some of these things for you. I'll experience your discomfort and your pain. And, and looking forward to season eight, I can't say too much, but there's a bit more pain left to come. I'll bet. Well, that's the thing I love about that show is, as with all great shows, is they keep you guessing all the way through. Yeah. And just when you think you know, I see this, I know everything that's going to come. Yeah. And then there's always that. Oh, yeah. It, it, I think as soon as, as soon as Ned Stark got beheaded... At oh, the, that's it, right? All bets are off. At the end of season one, all bets are off. The person that you thought was going to be your go-to point of contact for this show, the person who's going to take your hand and lead you through it, they're gone. You, you no longer have that, the safety. of Because that's the thing about the writing of Ned Stark and Sean's performance. You know that Ned Stark was a good man and, and an, an honest man and a noble man and a man who tried to do things for the right reasons. So you think as long as he's there everything else and all these scary people that we're going to come up against and all of these scary situations and all these unsettling things that are going to happen, as long as he's there, I'll know that there's a point of contact, of comfort, and I'll know that as long as Ned Stark's there, he'll kind of be a protective arm around my shoulder when I'm a bit scared by what's going on in this show. And he's gone. And you think, no, your, your centre of, of, of comfort, your almost paternal figure in this show has gone. And so now you're, you're completely on your own and you're left to deal with Joffrey without him. Oh, man. I was good. I, well, because there's that line that Sansa says in season seven where she's like, you know, Ned or dad, father, whatever she says, was, was a good man, an honest man and all this, but that's what got him killed. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. when you see that all those great qualities lead to that, yeah. then you're like, wow, where's this going to go? And Joffrey, one of the all-time great screen villains. Oh, completely, yeah. Did oh, that yeah. lad have to step back from acting? Is that sort of what happened with that? I think he, I think he just wanted to. Yeah. I, th- I think that there, there, there must have been so many opportunities for Jack to, to do things. But he, incredible performance. Incredible performance. Very Joaquin Phoenix-esque gladiator. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I mean he, 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 just the kind of epitome of all those performances that came before him. I think, I, I, I think that, that there, there must have been so many opportunities for him to go and do stuff because he, he was such a, a kind of all-consuming performance. He, 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 really, he really created so much emotion in, in people watching the show, and that's such a, that's such a kind of rare thing to do. That I, I just think he, he, had, he had an idea of what he wanted to do. He wanted to be an academic, and he's just gone along that path, and I think that's really admirable. Right I, I, would, yeah, yeah. I would say that it's a kind of... It is one of those things that... It's, it's true, but it has become a kind of cliche now that... That thing about oh hate the character respect the actor that's because because and everybody seemed to think they're the first person to think of it like everybody says oh you, he's a good actor because you hate him and you think yeah that's that is true we do know that but that's also does a, does a disservice to people who play good characters because by that course, yeah. because by that 
by that token, there's no way of knowing if you're doing a good performance, if you're playing a good character or not. I think it's just because people become... It, it generates such emotion. Strong emotion. Such strong yeah. emotion. That, that, that watching, a, watching somebody play a good character or a nice character... There's something a bit more subtle about that that they can't quite latch any real. Everyone loves a villain, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they, they can't love someone to hate and completely. They yeah. can't quite latch <laughs> quite so much visceral emotion onto a good character. But it's not to say that the the actor's not doing as good a job. They they are because they're having success on some level with this performance that they're doing. It's just that it's just that people seem to think that people discredit actors who play nice parts because they think because that that, that the thing that I've said. You know he's a good character. You know he's a good actor because you hate the character. Well, if he's playing a good part, how do you know he's a good actor then? And I mean, I think, I think, I think, essentially, you hate characters because of what they do. Yeah. But you like characters for a slightly different, less tangible reason. I think there's the idea of hating with with the villain, but with the hero or with the unsung hero perhaps it's this idea of rooting for them and the minute yeah. the minute because when your character turns up he's this kind of lovable but quite pathetic sort of you know bumbling yeah. fool yeah and then the second he has that speech with john you're like i'm rooting for this guy yeah because i know and so much of that again is down if we're talking about that thread is down to your performance and the sympathy that you inject into him as you go i'm with that guy because I feel for him. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to think so, but 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 you just don't seem to get the same visceral reaction. Yeah. So people 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 instead of diving into it the way they dive into evil characters and they really like to get amongst it. And well, it's that, like, that's like pantomime in that kind of masochistic <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah. They like to get in amongst it and see yeah, and yeah. see what's going on. They they like to be affected by it. With people who play slightly nicer characters, people step back a little bit and they don't get that. They don't tend to get that involved. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's quite a strange thing that I've, I've really grown to love Sam over eight years. He's in my top five characters in the whole show. Oh, thank Absolutely you, Absolutely so, because of the things that he's been through and the journey and evolution of that character. Yeah. And I want to ask you this. I think it's season two or three. Why do you think that White Walker leaves him? Because he spots him, doesn't he? Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of theories about that. The main Is there an answer? Or is it one of those things? I don't, that... think, I don't know the answer if there is one. What would be your take on why? Well, I read a thing, I read a thing recently that, that, that the way that somebody, somebody suggested that the, the reason that, he, that they didn't attack him was because he didn't resist. Right. Because yeah. he just cowered behind that rock and basically let it happen, thought he was going to die. That they didn't attack him for that. But if you try and fight them back, that's when they'll try. If, if you renege, this is only a theory. Mm. If you renege, then they'll leave you alone. Because there is that other guy in season, what, episode one, isn't there? Yes, that's right. With the head, and he's like, oh, and then they just kind of let him run Exactly, off, yeah. I think, yeah. I think if, you, if you fight back, then you're in trouble. That's just a theory. Yeah, yeah. It could be that. Yeah, but, but the character has evolved so much. The character has, has evolved from somebody who was broken and, and meek and dependent on Jon Snow for... Jon Snow to Sam in the early stages was everything that Sam wanted in life at that moment. Do you think that's why he shocked him out when he left? Because he wanted him there? What do you think his motive was for that? You know when Jon goes to leave the Night's Watch and yeah. Sam's like, he's gone, let's get him and bring him back. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly, yeah. Because, because at that moment, Sam wasn't capable of surviving on his enough. own. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. independent enough. He needed, he needed Jon to be... Uh, a, a big brother and a father and a mother and all of these, a best friend and a confidant. He needed him to be all those things. And when John leaves, Sam's completely adrift with all these people who would have almost certainly kicked his head in if John hadn't stopped them in episode four, whenever it was. He feels exposed. And that's a way that Sam's able to manipulate John over the course of that. He manipulates him so many times. Well, with getting him to run for the... Getting him to run for the, for the commander of the Night's Watch. Yeah. Also getting him to let Sam go to the Citadel in the first place at the end of season five. All of these things he... Which is interesting because that proves that he's not entirely good, doesn't it? Oh, no. And that's the thing I love about Game of Thrones, perhaps more than any other show, is almost every single character is made up of very strong good and bad elements. Yeah, completely. And that's obviously life, but very often you've got goodies and baddies, haven't you, in these kind of shows? He's just never had anything to fight for before. Yeah. And the reason why... It's like in, in, in only a couple of episodes later in the middle of season two... John wants to go off with Corrin Halfhand. And Sam says, yeah, go. Go. It's fine. Go. Because he's found... He, by that stage, he'd found Gillian baby Sam at Craster's. So that's on his mind. So that's given him a purpose. So that's given him something to fight for. Before that, he didn't have that. So he was entirely dependent on John for an agenda. Now he's got his own agenda. And that agenda comes up time and time again in terms of... He knows that John becoming Lord Commander is his best chance at getting out of there and getting to the Citadel. So he rigs the election, yeah, delivers yeah, yeah. that political speech in order to make sure that he's elected. Then he can work on John to get them out of there. So, yeah, it, it, he'll, he'll, he'll do anything for, for, for Gilly and Baby Sam because they're what his principles are. His, his entire moral code is based on keeping them safe. He considers that and that priority to be... The, the center of his moral universe and not procedure and not, uh, not, uh, you know, for example, 
in terms of all the rules that he has to obey at the Citadel and all of the rules that he has to obey in the Night's Watch, he'll completely disregard them as being uh, as being um, trivial and being uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Hypocritical. Hypocritical. Uh, there's a word where ambiguous. They're kind of ambiguous and they're and they're written by a man one day who probably had his own agenda. Yeah. He, he doesn't care about. He sees the flexibility. He sees the flexibility because he he, he just believes in right and wrong. He doesn't believe that you can't manipulate an uh, an election in for the the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. If if that's going to keep the people he loves safe, then he's going to do whatever it takes, whether whether it breaks rules or doesn't break rules. The fact that he's with her at all has broken a rule of the Night's Watch oath. It's such a sweet love story that is as well. Yeah, no, It's, it's it's so tender. It's one of those very few moments of respite from the carnage and the chaos yeah. that's going on everywhere. It is one of those very few storylines where whenever you're in that, so far anyway, at least, apart from the odd threat and rape here or there, yeah, where it is just like, ah, oh, yeah, there's still good and hope. Yeah, completely. Pure. But, but, that's, but that's, that's only sweeter because it, it's come out of Suffering. such a, such a yeah. painful uh, childhood for them both in terms of we know what Sam's father's like and in terms of Craster you know, who, who the, the systematic rape of his own daughters and murder of his own sons. It's only because both of them just assume when they were growing up, presumably, that they'd never have any comfort in their lives. They'd never have any real love. There are so many boundaries to overcome before they'll ever be really loved by somebody. The fact that they get there and find each other. There's a brilliant piece of direction that we got from Alec, our director in season three. He, um, it's one of the best bits of direction I've ever been given and Hannah says the same thing that, from a performance side uh, yeah just, just from a kind of contextual side of what they mean to each other right, he yeah, said yeah. Uh, we were doing the scene where Sam gives Gilly the the thimble yeah. that was his mother's before he goes away and Alec came over and said um, what you need to remember about these two characters is they're like two birds and each of them has a broken wing but they're able to fly together where they wouldn't be able to fly apart and, and I thought that, that really sums them up. There's so much pain between them, and especially the way Gilly, the, the abuse that she's suffered and the way that Sam is, knows that he has to navigate a lot of those, the, the, those kind of psychological valleys within Gilly's psyche yep. in order to keep her safe and not... Because, because as soon Scare as... Scare her away or soon, damage her more, yeah. If you look at Gilly's relationship with male figures in her life mm-hmm. it's only craster because because craster kills his first kills his sons as soon as, or gives them to the whites as soon as they're born so that's dark as well yeah, that's it? so dark so <laughs> that, that's the only male figure she's ever had in her life so sam knows that if he was to ever make her think by accident that he's like that if he ever did through a little misstep or a little piece of misjudgment if she ever believes that he's anything like Craster, then that's everything that he's worked towards collapsed. So that's how delicate that relationship still is. It is lovely. But, but, but you were saying about, you know, it is a bit of a respite, respite from a lot of the other stuff that happens in the show. But I, but I presume that there are some people who don't like it so much. Why so? Just because, just because it, it is such, it's such a... It's such a uh, Broad landscape, the show. Yeah, and there's certain things, and there's so much. Exactly, the there's so it covers so much. It covers so much emotion. It covers so much uh, psychology and so many relationships. 
and there's a lot of action as well, of yeah, course. Yeah, on yeah. top of that, and there's a lot of great visuals, and there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of uh, you know almost as we've said Shakespearean kind of Elizabethan drama to it. Yeah, there, there must be some people who 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 watch Sam and Gilly waiting for somebody's head to be chopped off somewhere else. I, I, I imagine, oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me though, I imagine that's the case. What is everybody fighting for? And that is the definition: life, family. Yeah. Oh like, yeah. W- without that. It's all gone, and you might as well just become a White Walker and let them storm the lands. For me, those tiny little scenes—that's what everybody's fighting for. That's what pushes Cersei to do all the stuff she's done. Oh yeah, his family. And- exactly, and 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 you know, that—that's the thing that I'm saying. I'm, I'm I'm kind of defending all of those parts of the show. There may be fourteen-year-old boys somewhere who just want to see a lot of action. Of that's course, fine. they, they yeah, cater yeah. for. Well, that's the beauty of the show, right? Exactly, that's caters to all you need. Sooner or later, <laughs> they're going to find something they like as well. Yeah. But I think I think there's there's definitely a place for for all of these kind of scenes of just two people interacting. And Game of Thrones has always done action in spectacular ways. Season after season, they kind of outdo each other when it comes to action. The Battle of the Bastards, man! Battle of the Bastards is incredible. Wild. People are going to remember that, that was f- forever and ever. It was crazy, but some of the some of the equally as affecting and and. And important and successful sequences in the show are just two people talking, and I, I, I think that a lot of shows who have kind of come out since in, in a Game of Thrones mold, they lose that with the kind of costume action, very heavy on the action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But quite lacking in nuance, I think. And 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 as I've said, I think I've said it. I must have said it a couple of times before because I believe it so strongly that the reason why Battle of the Bastards was so successful. Is because that was episode nine, and you've had eight episodes before that of build up and context, and, and you really want that dude dead. Yeah, yeah, you, you have to have seen all that. Yeah, you have yeah. to know what it means to John. What's at stake? You have to, you have to know what's at he stake. He loses, and she goes back with him. Exactly. You could do that. You could do that if you had the budget as season one, episode one of something. Yeah, and as an exercise, well, it reminds me of the opening scene in Gladiator. Yeah, it's a similar sort of exactly. But in terms of in terms of you know, direction of action and, and performances and and CGI, all of that stuff is there and it's a great showcase for all of that stuff. And even even taken out of the context of the show, it's still a very impressive piece of work. But once you have it in that context and once you've had to watch once you've watched was that season five or six? The Battle of the Bastards I think was six. Six. I think if you watched nearly six whole seasons of show in order to get to that that's when that's when it becomes really satisfying. Oh yeah, who who directed? I'm sure it's a famous British director. The final battle sequence of one of the seasons, where all the wildlings storm. Oh, that was f- Neil Marshall. And it's all pretty much one take, isn't it? Right, the camera's just oh all, yeah, almost for, for at least sort of ten to fifteen minutes. Oh, that soon, yeah. One camera just going warm, 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 one yeah, take around the whole that was, castle. Uh, yeah, that was in season four. That was Alex Graves. Right, right, right. That was an amazing because I, I wasn't part of that sequence. Yeah, I, yeah, Hannah yeah. was in that sequence. Yeah, and, and yeah, that was literally like a like a ten minute. It's incredible, man. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the ambition of. Of these guys, that's the ambition of TV now, so to be yeah. cinematic. And if you take around the same time, uh, True Detective was doing their amazing one-shot stuff as well. Now it's not just about two close-ups and a wide, and let's mm-hmm. get it on telly. Now telly's about let's let's try and compete, and let's let's compete on all levels. Let's compete on a visual level. On every, so we just don't want to be the kind of 
poor relation of film. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. want to create art for our own media medium. How's working with Kit? Because you two have a great comic pairing, and you're almost like a yin and a yang. Yeah, you know? and and they're really again they're very very subtle, but as well as those moments of tenderness and friendship, there's some really great subtle comic scenes between those two. Yeah, and I think that, that that's a testament again, again to just how sensitive David and Dan are as writers. The fact that we started filming uh, in August 2010 and we'd done a few days and, and Kit and I, who had never met before, we started to become friends and we started to establish our relationship and and we d- developing the chemistry between ourselves as just young lads. It wasn't about being actors. It was just about you know young men who had a lot in common in terms of their interests who were suddenly starting a journey together and really starting to get to know each other and become friends. And David and Dan must have been observing this uh, and, and taking note of certain things and taking note of, the, of the, the ease with which we communicate with each other. And then there was one episode, I think it was, must have been episode four, that was running short. They they filmed us. I think this is right. Forgive me. Somebody out there will probably know the real story. This isn't true. But but um, it was running short, so they had to fill it out with with some more stuff and not blow the budget. So it had to be with actors who were already cast in in sets that were already there. Um, so they sent us this scene. I was away. I was away, and this was kind of the October, so two months in. They sent us. This is a new scene. We're going to film it next week. And it was a scene with John and Sam cleaning tables uh, in Castle Black and talking about girls and yeah. talking about why they were still virgins. And that's quite a sweet comic scene as well until Alistair Thorne comes in buzzkill and talks about, <laughs> talks about how cold it is beyond the wall and why we shouldn't be laughing. But, but they, they'd clearly given us that scene because they, they saw that our own chemistry as actors would lend itself to that. And what I and what's so fascinating about that is that's the humanity coming into it again. Yeah. The fact that Jon Snow and Sam are in extraordinary circumstances. They've they've both had a lot of pain and they've they both had complicated relationships with their fathers and suddenly they're in this very inhospitable landscape with threats coming from all sides and and people even in Castleback themselves who hate them both and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of drama to deal with on a daily basis for those, both these characters. But that's what makes this show different from a lot of other shows who would have just made it quite gloomy and quite pretentious. And the only time that people talk to each other in that environment is when they're talking about battles and when they're talking about, you know, what, what, how, how valuable life is and all of this stuff and this threat's coming from there. The fact that they, they David and Dan, in that scene, just illustrated the fact that they're just young men young lads with girls on the brain they're just young boys they've got they've got they've got the same worries and concerns and fixations as as boys have anywhere else and because of that you're drawn to them because you can see the humanity in them one of one of the things one of the things that i think sam is important for is that if you take that episode at the end of season four where the, the, the Battle of Castle Black directed by Neil Marshall that was the one I thought you meant great episode also yeah and he's the guy that did um, with Christopher Eccleston which one was that? I'll have to look it up you set the scene yeah so <laughs> he, uh, yeah so that whole episode is about the Battle of Castle Black and wildlings are coming over the wall from all angles and the, and the very depleted uh, <clears throat> Night's Watch force have to try and fight them off 
And and the reason why Sam's so effective in that scene is because he's the only one out of them who can't Dog really... Soldiers. Dog Soldiers, yeah. Great film. And also The Descent. Amazing, yeah. Incredible. Yeah, amazing. What, I mean, what a treat to get to work with a guy like that, especially on an action sequence like that, because yeah. he's such a expert in those things and knows exactly what he's doing. To just even be around such a creative force working at his his particular piece of expertise what a dream that was so the reason why Sam's so important in that episode is because everybody else in that episode pretty much can fight and he's able to kind of not cope with it but he's able to kind of hold their own in that environment with wildings coming at you and you've got to swing a sword you've got to try and kill them off because it's what you've been stationed up here to do the reason why Sam becomes the everyman in that environment is because he's not a hero in the conventional sense and he is how the man in the street would react to being in that environment pretty much everybody likes to what do i do yeah everybody (laughs) everybody likes to think that they're john snow yeah and everybody likes to think in that environment they'd be swinging a sword around and doing forward rolls and and chopping people in half chances are they probably wouldn't a lot of them and they'd be scared they'd be just as scared as sam was and sam is an insertion into that environment of absolutely how most people would react and you, you do get it sometimes that people people who don't like sam as a character tend to go on and on about how much they don't like sam as a character do you get a lot of that yeah you do get it you do get it sometimes you do get people say i don't like your character too much and and to your face yeah sometimes <laughs> and, and, and you do think i didn't write the books mate <laughs> exactly, don't shoot yeah. the messenger exactly <laughs> I, but, but i i kind of do get defensive about him yeah and, and, and I find myself explaining this sometimes. His worth and his place. Explaining his worth and, 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 you know, just how, like we were talking about before, he can be a, a badass when he wants to be. Badass seems to be the thing that everybody wants in characters that they like. Now, if you're not a badass, you're generally not worth well, watching. Well, who, who discovered but, where all the dragons Exactly, yeah. But, but you do feel that you're going on about it so much about how much you don't like him. Yeah. I think you think it says something about you. The fact that you don't like him. I think you you going on about how much you don't... Maybe I'm being over-defensive and maybe they just don't like him, which is fine. But I do think sometimes that you think it makes you look hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you say that you've not got any time for a weak character, you think you look hard by saying that. Yeah. And, you, and you think you look like a badass for saying that. I can see through those. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about working with Jim Broadbent. Oh, Jim. Because he yeah. is just one of the most lovable actors. Yeah. Of all time. And he's still doing it. And I guess the scenes that you have with him, a lot of the time it's just you and him, isn't it? So tell yeah. me about working like right up close with, with I remember. Like I that. remember when I first found out uh, uh, that, that it was going to be Jim playing that part. Because I read the script and I thought, I've got, I, I hope I have a nice relationship with whoever's playing this part because we've got so much time together. And it's a playful dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It, it really is. And... and I was I was in a room with with David and Dan, and David and Dan know that I'm a big uh, Man United fan. They know that I'm a huge Man United fan, and and, and I kind of bore them with it, and and and, 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 and they talk about it a lot. So bunch Dan, of bums and Busby Bees. Exactly. Yeah. So Dan was saying to me, <clears throat> Dan said, uh, Archmaster Ebros, who Jim later played. Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah. He says, uh, Do you want to know who we've got playing that part? And I went, No. Who? And he went, Wayne Rooney. <laughs> <laughs> so I was and like, yes, I, like, I yes. even care if it doesn't work. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so they knew that. And, uh, and, and, and so, so I laughed and then said, no, it's, it's uh, Jim Broadbent. And I thought, not only 
is it exciting the fact that I get to work with Jim Broadbent, who, who may, I don't know if he still is, or if he ever was, the only Oscar winner we've ever had in the cast. Oh, really? Yeah, there may be others, but, but Jim, Jim was the one that I, I can pinpoint. Surely Jonathan Price, never? I'm not sure, actually. Because I mean, well, maybe not. We'll have to look that up. We'll have to look that up as well. Yeah, but but certainly, certainly to have an Oscar-winning actor on the show not only was exciting for me. Charles Dance has got to have won an Oscar, right? I don't know. We could list them. He deserves. He deserves one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But but Jim was the only one who I knew for a fact. Yeah, yeah. And and I just thought this. There's so much to be happy about here. Not only the fact that that I get to work with uh, an Oscar-winning actor of Jim's caliber who's done some of my favourite work. Work with so many different people in so many different types of films. Not only that, they believe that I will be able to be in scenes with Jim Broadbent and not embarrass myself, yeah, and not and not look like, not like a kind of man against boys thing where he's showing me the ropes and I'm just flailing around trying to do my best. The fact that they thought I could deal with that was a compliment and a huge boost and and a really nice thing to do for me. And also the fact that actors of that caliber are coming onto our show. Like the word has clearly gone around that Game of Thrones is a thing that is is worth doing as an actor who can basically pick and choose his parts, and he wanted to come on Game of Thrones for a season because he he trusted it and and his agent trusted it and knew that it'd be good and knew that it'd be a worthwhile fulfilling thing for him to do, and yeah, as soon as as soon as he got on set, I just realised I, I I realised suddenly why he was such a big deal. Right. Because, not because of the way he behaved, not because of any posturing that he did. He was, he was really the nicest guy and such a team player and, and so graceful and so generous with everything, with his, with his time and his advice and absolutely everything like that. But I thought, before I went onto the set, I thought, I bet, I bet there's a lot of editing goes on and I bet that he's going to do some takes that aren't quite so good and I can relax a bit because I know he's not going to be perfect every time and he's going to relax me if he makes a couple of mistakes and I can feel I can make mistakes around him and not feel stupid and uh, he did his first take and it was perfect just straight it's up just, no just straight off but straight off detailed nuanced thoughtful sensitive, so much work had gone into it, word perfect, every single moment just sang. Sometimes you get actors, and Jim's one of them, they, their moments just sing. It, 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 like, like a little turn of the head or a little flicker of the eyes, like a, it's like a, 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 like a ding, like a perfect tone, perfect pitch. And he did that several times throughout this take. And I'm just like, oh, I'm working with a serious, a serious, like hero here and a serious legend and that and that continued every 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 day he came in with ideas and every day he came in with with uh with a sense of fun and a sense of playfulness and i'd like to think that that you know if i work for as long as he's worked and probably won't uh, achieve the things he'd achieve but if i'm still coming into work with that attitude of let's enthusiasm enthusiasm and let's let's make something good and and here's, here's my ideas. You don't have to take them. I'm just saying, yeah, I'm going to take direction from you, however you want to direct me. This show has been going for six years. It's your show. Please feel free. If I can have that kind of attitude, then I think I'll be very, very happy. And I remember on the last day when he rapped, I went uh, and knocked on his trailer door and he opened his trailer and he said, come in. And, uh, and I said, well, it's been lovely working with you, Jim. And I, and I, and I gave, him, gave him a hug. 
And he said... That's yeah, got to be a good moment. It's, a, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing moment. Yeah, I'll never forget it. <laughs> and he says, it's been fun. And I says, yeah, it's been fun. And I like to think that he's, he's done so much work. He's continuing to do so much work of such a high standard. And I and everybody else in the crew, but me as his scene partner, made it fun for him still. And I was very proud of that as well and very pleased with that. And that's a moment that I'll cherish. He's a hero, isn't he? He's just a, yeah, he a is. British institution. And, and you know, going right back to Only Fools and Horses. You know what I mean? He was, in, he, he was Inspector Slater in Only Fools and Horses. And I remember, I remember that... <laughs> come full circle, dude. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, remember that, <laughs> I remember that performance as being one of the most... One of the most affecting performances I'd seen at that age. Because Slater, of course, in Only Fools and Horses, is, as ba- is a bad guy. It's, it's so interesting when you think of... I've been thinking a lot about those old sitcoms. You get somebody like Del Boy. This is a slight uh, digression. Dude, that's what podcasts are made you for. You get somebody like Del Boy, who's a petty criminal. Yeah. And would, uh, would con people out of anything. Would probably, would probably con his friends. Has a bit of a code. But would probably con people. Would, would, would rob and steal. And he's the good guy. He seems to be lacking in moral fibre, really. Because... He'll take from anybody for his own gain. He's the, he's the good guy. And then the, the cop, Inspector Slater, played by Jim, who tries to keep everybody on the straight and narrow and tries to be a, an enforcer of the law. He's seen as he's the bad like guy. The villain. Yeah, it's just so bizarre. <laughs> it's so bizarre the way that... The way that you, people talk about HBO and, and Sopranos and The Wire and things like that about, <clears throat> about the kind of... The anti-hero, right? The anti-hero and the people that you're rooting for changes all the time and suddenly... The Wire is, is probably one of my favourite shows of all time. But I, think, I think season four of The Wire might be the best season of television I've ever seen. There you go. And, and something about the quality of those performances, especially from uh, Michael K. Williams, who I met a couple of years ago, a couple of times, and I was completely overawed by meeting him. He can make... He can make a a violent criminal. The somehow hit, redeemable. Somehow redeemable and somehow likable and somehow you're rooting for him. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's HBO and modern drama. They're reprehensible characters, but you kind of like them. But I think, I think that, that they've not got the monopoly on that. Only fools and horses. There you go. You like Dell, and Dell <laughs> Del is highly dubious and highly questionable. And I think, I think that that's where the best drama comes from it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be an emmy winning drama it can be a little sitcom but it makes you question motive and question humanity and think if i was struggling would i do any of these things and it it always it makes you examine yourself and makes you think well i can't really be pointing fingers at anybody i can't be throwing stones at anybody because i'm not perfect either and neither any of these characters and i think that that's that kind of landscape and that conflict is what makes any piece of drama worth watching I think your craft is so all encompassing and incredible and to liken if I can it's a stretch but go with go me. with it the reason I do this is because I know I can apply my work to my life yeah and everything that you've said to me today is about learning these lessons from the work that you're doing yeah and applying them to the way which you interact and engage with the world around you yeah right yeah and learn lessons from these stories these characters these experiences and apply them to the everyday yeah you have to it's it's everybody's everybody's on a journey all the time and 
And but I think with your craft, you're consciously aware of that journey. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's such a for me a really enticing and a beautiful career and profession is because you're made to be consciously aware of this crazy thing called life. Completely, and 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 you you consider where you are now, and and you think of everything that you've done in the past as being collected together in the vast kind of bag that you carry around with you labeled experiences and and you think right all of those experiences and all of those lessons I've learned have led up to this exact second in my life and then you think but in next week this is just going to go in that bag and I'm and this is going to be another thing that I learn from and this is going to be another this is going to be another thing that that I will draw upon in a few years and say, well, I won't do that because that day I learned that lesson. Just in terms of a career, in, in terms of in terms of being an act, being an actor is is quite tough when it comes to reviewing your own work and your own body of work because I can believe it, mate. Because even even if you look at you you now you you see a bit of Game of Thrones season one or even that two three even even probably up to like season six. You watch it and you think, "Oh, if only oh, I'd done that a bit." I would have done that a bit differently. I'm, 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 I'm not too chuffed that I made that choice, and and that's been documented for all time. Documented for all time, and people are going to be watching that. And especially because it's season one, you think oh, that's the first, that's the first thing people are going to watch. But the first time they see me, you're going to be like, "Oh, who's this bloke?" And and you know, it's so hard to have to look because you're constantly learning, constantly evolving. I think it's probably the same with most with most people. But yours is the most cerebral, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, and, and also, you, the one that you can't seem to escape either. Yeah. Because, because it's, out there, it's yeah. constantly being rediscovered, it's constantly being repeated. And, and you just think, if I could just go back to season one and just do that again, it'd be so much better. But, but then again. But then only you think that. Only and I think. That's that struggle, isn't it? Only I think that. And if, if I did that again now, in 2018, hopefully, because it's not a bad thing, it's actually a good thing. In 2025, I look at it. I want to do it all over again, anyway. So it's it's just all about all about learning as you go and 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 hoping to develop. And you should never be too happy with yourself early on. Well, complacency is the absolute, I think, end of progression, isn't yeah. it? There's a reason why. There's a reason why people continue to work because you're constantly trying to better it, or you're constantly trying to outdo yourself. And I, and, and and you know. That's another thing we were talking about earlier on about you're one of two people. You're a person who can either deal with pressure or you're a person who can't. And you're either a person who's comfortable in terms of, not in terms of those successes I've talked about, not in terms of fame and not in terms of money, but in terms of how good you are at your job. You're either comfortable and you think, oh, I'll get by on that and I can probably eke out a living with that and, and you know, nobody's going to ask too many questions. Or you can, you're the one who thinks, I'm, I could be better than this. You're hungry. Hungry, and, I, and, and I'm not that good now. And I hope I look back on my performances now in 10 years and think they're not very good because that means I'm, I'm better then. How do you deal with, with the sort of the fame and the recognition that's come with the show? I think I've, I think I've kind of protected myself from it in, in, uh, in all the ways that I think I can by, by kind of still living in Manchester and by doing the same things I've always done, hanging around with the same friends 
and and just seeing my family a lot and not really changing my kind of day-to-day behavior i think you, i think it can be not avoided but i think it can be policed if you really want it to if you if you're stumbling out of groucho's at three in the morning and asking why people are taking pictures of you you should have known that going in that, yeah. that you should have known that going in that was going to happen and and you know with 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 kind of reality tv people who become quite famous quite early on for nothing in particular. For nothing in particular, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I mean, to be fair, I met the guy from Geordie Shore at the Dirty Sanchez show he did last week, Kyle, oh, yeah. and he oh, was yeah. lovely. I'd never seen the show, so yeah. I didn't know what he was like in that or so in life. Yeah, and you sort of see someone like that, and he doesn't really look like someone that I'd usually hang around with, not to judge someone by their appearance. Yeah, you know completely. What I mean? And he was the sweetest, loveliest guy. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, oh, they absolutely are, and and, and also. And also, there there is a product that they put out. People do like those shows. They wouldn't watch them if they didn't like them. So it's not that they... It's, it's not... a shame they've overtaken the sitcom, isn't it, though? Well, exactly. the sitcom is almost non-existent in the modern-day television of, yeah. landscape, it's, isn't it? They're expensive to put on. Yeah. People who do anything to be on telly, you don't have to pay them that much money. But but if they if they they suddenly want to become famous because they think they know what fame is, and then they become famous through a reality show and then they're seen on the red carpet of certain events and they're getting free holidays if they'll put it on Instagram or whatever. And then then you see a news article where it says, oh, so-and-so hits back at trolls or, 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 or talks about why, why people are wrong to criticise them about this, that and the other. You think, well, that should have been explained to you that that is a part of it. Yeah. And as much as we hate it, as much as, as, much as trolling and all of that stuff is hugely destruct, uh, destructive and disgusting a lot of it and bordering on criminal a lot of it a lot of the time and, and, and something should be done about it on some level to stop it, you can't be shocked about it. That's the deal you make, that's right? The, that, that's the kind Unfortunately, of, that's the kind of deal you make and, and, and you can either buy into that or not buy into that. It's in, terms of, in terms of kind of inspiration... For how I deal with that, I think I've always seen, I've always seen Paul Scholes. There you go. As, back to United. Back to United as, as my as my kind of guide for when it comes to that kind of stuff. The fact that he was incredible, truly incredible, an incredible technical footballer, and and somebody who could change the game in the blinking of an eye. Had so much natural ability about him. But when the when the game was finished, he'd shower and be in his car and off home before anybody knew he'd even gone. And I think that there's something to be said for that. And I, and I, and I like that. I'd like to think that I could get to a place where I can be really good at my job, only known for my job, and then and not your personal and not, life. And not my personal and life, and, and then just disappear, do my job well, and then go home. But because a lot of people now their job is to be famous, yeah. I feel really sorry for them because because that is what. That is what they're paid to do. They're paid to put things on Instagram. They're paid to endorse things on Instagram. And they're paid to go to red carpet events and have their photograph taken. So there's no job to find solace in. Yeah. It's only the fame. And I think, and I think that that's why, why they don't handle it that well. Because, because there's nowhere to hide in. There's no, there's no kind of day job. There's only everything that they thought was... A perk of fame. They've only got the perks. They've not even got the foundation to lay it on. And I think that that's that's why a lot of them struggle. And 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 that's not their fault. They probably do need a little bit more counselling in that before they go on that process. If you, if you apply to Love Island or you apply to any of these things, there should be a, a chat with you or, or a serious piece of pre-counselling before you do it, where you say. You're going to do this show. You're going to become very, very famous. 
you're going to, you know, every, every single move you, you make is going to be scrutinized and analyzed. And you're probably going to get some people who won't like you for it or will give you a load of shit for it. And you'd have to worry about their motive because they don't really have a motive. Their own motive most of the time is the fact that they're not really doing much and they're kind of jealous and they wish they were you. But the, the, their motive for doing it is quite apart from that. You're going to get a lot of that and you're going to get a lot of stick. Do you think you can handle it? And if they say yes, then, then that's fine. But they need to be told about all that because it's a cruel, it's a cruel place. It's a very cruel place. And I, and, and I hope that they're, I hope that they're happy and I hope that, I hope that they're dealing with it in the right way. But if, if you kind of believe some of the stories you hear, they're not. And that's a kind of shame. But yeah, I, I think if, if you protect yourself from it the way I try to, then, then it's easily kind of navigatable. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm kind of an outsider anyway because, because the, you know, the whole, uh, some of it's in Manchester, but a lot of the... Can you walk around a lot of places and not get recognised? Can you get away with that? Not really, but, but the, the thing about the show is that it, it, it's a very comfortable level of fame in so much as, especially my character, who's not, and me, myself as an actor, who's not necessarily part of huge public campaigns for stuff, you can, you can manage it because people who come up to you are people who've watched seven seasons of your show. Yeah, and, and they just want to have a little chat. And they're going to really it. like it, and and, and they're going to they're going to talk to you about it. They're going to have opinions about it. But people aren't still going to be watching it after eight seasons if they don't like it. So they're not going to come up to you with any abuse or any kind of ill feeling, really. So it's a nice level of fame in so much as I've been out. I've been out. Um, I mean, uh, someone like Kit. Yeah. Does he get hounded? It's harder for Kit, yeah, yeah. because he's a much more... He, he's dealt with it incredibly well, I have to say. He's dealt with it in, in a, 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 as good a way as I think you really can. In so much as he's, he's managing his career brilliantly as well. He's not necessarily taking all the jobs that get thrown at him. He's doing things that he finds personally fulfilling. He's, he did a play in London a couple of years ago. He's doing another play in London next year. He's not just... And I bet he's getting offers of course left, he right, is. and centre for a lot of those kind of roles, right? For a lot of those historical roles, historical epics, and yeah, that are, prob- that are probably big books and yeah. and all of that stuff. But he's he's doing plays and producing his own shows for the BBC. Great, and I, I, and I, th- I think that's how you do it. You have to have that foundation of, of work that you can be comfortable in, and then everything else doesn't really matter. And and yeah, Kit, Kit, and and Emilia as well. I imagine she can float around a little bit easier, right? Because she looks so drastically different on the show. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. I guess she's sort of... I've not noticed either of them... Photographed. Either of them, or, of or, so, well. or Sophie or Maisie. I've not, I've not really noticed them change at all. And the thing about, about when I met them was that was at the very last point when they weren't famous. Yeah. They were just about to become very, very famous. But I met them all just as they were about to become famous. So I met them when they weren't famous. And they've not changed. As people, they've not changed. And, and, and I think that that's, that's a, a, a credit to them and a credit to their families and a credit to David and Dan for, I think, just maybe instinctively casting people that they thought would deal with it well. Could handle it. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a funny game and, and, I, 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 and it's not... It seems to be such a currency now. In so much as you get somebody like Trump, for example... Who, who was rich from birth, super rich from birth, and 
could have just gone through his life spending all the money that he's got and keeping out the keeping out of the public eye. Yeah. Or as much as he could keep out of the public eye. He wants to be famous. And it's not even just about being people say I want to be rich and famous. Even rich people want to be famous. Yeah. And I think that I think that they do it without really realizing what the cost is. I mean, not to sympathise with that guy, because he obviously is a monster, but yeah. there has to be times when he's just on his own in the bathroom, looking in the mirror, just going, I want to jump off. I want to yeah. get off. Yeah, well... That, but, there has to be, right? Well, it, it, it's, it, it's one of those things, I think, I, think, I think Billy Connolly said it about politicians. He said that the desire to be a politician should stop you ever really becoming one. If you want to be a politician, you should ask people who do you want to be a politician? And they say, yes. They say, right, we're never going to make sure you never are. Because it says something about what they want. Yeah. I think people who want to be famous shouldn't be. Because they'll go, they'll go about it all wrong. They'll get themselves in a mess and they'll dive into it and they'll, and they'll dig a hole for themselves and they won't be able to get out of it. It's what we were saying right at the very start. If you want to be an actor and then become famous, you can deal with it. If you just want to be famous you're just going to get lost in it. And that, that's, why, that's why I think, you know, I, when I go away, when I go to LA to the Emmys and stuff, and, and when, I, when I go to awards ceremonies and when I go to Comic-Con, I like to be able to come back and tell my friends in Manchester about it. Yeah. I like to come back and say, you won't believe this, I met... I met, I met because it, what, it, it reminds you of how absurd it all is. Exactly. I met, I met Steve Buscemi and he was amazing. Was I, it? Yeah, he really yeah. was. Yeah, he's the coolest ever. I met Steve Buscemi and then, and then I, I went, we went to this thing and then we went to this, we went for dinner here, then the awards ceremony and they're like, wow, they're listening. I just think, I, want, I always want that to be special. Yeah. And it's not that you're bragging, obviously, no, it's that you're sharing that crazy trip. With the people, with the people that you know and love, because I've, I'm buzzing off it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, and I know yeah. they'll buzz off it. I think as soon as it becomes your everyday life, as soon as you move, routine or as soon monotonous, as, you, as soon as yeah. you move to LA, and as soon as you go to Soho House every single night and hang out with with celebrities and people, as soon as you you get so used to that that you can't function if it's gone, which it can go for anybody at any time. It can go, so. As soon as it goes, you're completely lost because you don't have anything anymore because you've turned your back on all your old friends and your old lifestyle. And now people in Soho House don't want to know you because you're not really doing anything. You're not really working. So you've got nowhere to go. But my, my attitude to, to all of that stuff has always been a kind of the old thing of got along without you before I met you, you're going to get along without you now. So if it's finished, I've had an amazing time. And nobody can take those memories away from me, but I've still got my life that's solid yeah. And I've still got all my friends who knew me before any of it, knew me when I was at school. I've still got all them who will, who will still want to speak to me and still think exactly the same of me if I suddenly was broke and all of that went away. And I think, and I think that that's interesting. It, it should all be exciting. It should all be a novelty. You should never let it be your life because it's dangerous. Do you know Thomas Turgoose? I think, I think you get on really well with him. He's got a very similar attitude and he has grown up his whole life in Grimsby where he's yeah. from, never left. And the conversations we had, you know, he was there at the, um, what's the spy movie he did? Oh, we did a film with the Margot Robbie one that he did recently? Did no, it's the big, the big uh, Guy Ritchie chain. Oh, yes. What, what, what's it called? It's like James Bond, but not. Do you know the films that I mean? No. 
they're all eluding me today. Anyway, he was at the premiere for that, and there's like Channing Tatum and all these yeah. huge superstars. And he said the same thing. He's like, I was just tripping with my girlfriend. Like we were just in there look, looking yeah. around at everything, just going, bloody hell, there's so and so. Exactly. There's so and so. And that's exactly how it should be. And that and that's that's when you know it's not bragging. Yeah. Because somebody can then come to you and speak to you with all the enthusiasm in the world. We went to the went to Leicester Square and we got let out of the car and people were signing autographs. As soon as that becomes Oh yeah, we boring, got the car, opened the door, got out the car, signed a few autographs. As soon as it becomes you become jaded, then you've got nothing then you have to keep trying to attain new highs. Yeah. And you you, you keep having to try and push yourself to experience things again. And I think and, 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 and you know, you know, you know, it's so weird that kind of it's probably it's probably not a it's a controversial subject, but, but drugs, for example, hard drugs. The reason why I think they're so prevalent amongst musicians and amongst actors is that they become so jaded by their normal, the, the excitement of their normal lives. They need something else. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you... Well, you're forever chasing that high then, aren't you? That buzz, exactly. that rush. You think of or rock, you just want to hide from the reality because you can't cope with completely. it. Completely. You think of rock stars and the man in the... Me, I, I, I want to be a rock star, probably always will. You look at them <laughs> and you think... You think I, I, if I was that, I'd be so happy that I was just a rock star and had that lifestyle. I wouldn't need drugs and risk killing myself and risk... Throwing your whole career throwing away. Throwing my whole career, my, my life away and everybody I love turning the back on me. I wouldn't even risk it. But it's, I think it's only when you've been in that and you've let it consume you to that degree. You've let your everyday life, you've let playing Wembley Stadium get boring. That You start trying to find something else and you'll never... Everything gets, everything gets added into that bag like we were talking about before. Yeah, like, like your Everything, everything goes into it, and you find that you've not got another kind of mountain left to climb, and that's well, when you burn out. It's 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 very sad that that happens, but I think it's it's just a, it's either a product of losing your way a bit, or mismanagement, or mismanaging your own life. As long as you can keep something in your life that you love unconditionally whether it be your girlfriend or your wife or your partner or your acting your job your family as long as you can keep or a hobby even if you can keep something that you can go to if nothing else was there that's that that's the way to keep uh, to keep your head above the water i think that's some good life advice there, John. Okay. Let's segue into music real quick. Yeah. Whilst I look at the name of this film, it's going to drive me mad. Do you ever get that where you can't think of something? Always, you know, yeah. I need the answer to this. So you're a drummer. Yes, I am. Uh, what was the, or who was, sorry, the band that switched you on to that instrument? Was there one drummer in particular or was it just the kind of need to bash stuff? I'd say it'd be, well, probably my first favourite band and probably still my favourite band now, ACDC. They are. They probably are, yeah. Oh, mate, let's get into this. Yeah, then. they are. They have been for a very long time. And and there's something about them that I think... It's like we were talking before about sitcoms and all that stuff. You, you, you appreciate them on a kind of... On a level at first where you don't quite appreciate the nuance of it all. Matthew Vaughan was the guy who produced Guy Ritchie's films early on, and Kingsman is the oh Kingsman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, if you just said Matthew Vaughan, I would have known you remember Matthew. Blew it. Yeah, as you were, sir. Yeah. So, so I, 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 my relationship with ACDC then and still now is a purely, it's a visceral one. Yeah. It's in the guts. They get you right there. They don't get they? you right there, and there's not that much to think about. Nope. 
there's not that much to think about at all. And there's not that much to think about in terms of lyrically. Well, certainly not in the kind of Brian Johnson era. No, bon, I mean, Bon had those it's slightly, slightly storytelling po- kind of... Poetic touches. Yeah. But in the Brian era, it doesn't really matter what he's saying. He's just got, double on time. He's got an amazing it? voice. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what he's saying. The lyrics don't really make sense a lot of the time. It's just <laughs> the combination of those sounds. Yeah. And you don't have to really think about it. And I think that you can get, you can get swallowed up in the academic side of music well being on my side of things you know i've never considered myself a journalist i wouldn't like to because the idea for me of being called that would imply that i'm someone who tries to critique yeah work and i want to critique in a good way but i've always had this opinion that if i don't like something i'll kind of just not publicly express my opinion yeah because i'd rather focus my attention on things that i do like yeah and the good qualities and that's what music journalism is. So you get all these people trying to look down on a band like ACDC because they've never changed their sound yeah. because it's simplistic. And you're like, it is the most unadulterated fun you can have yeah, I think it absolutely in is. your life. Completely. Like whether you're with a young child yeah. or an elderly relative or a friend or a partner, an ACDC show is the most yeah. unbridled like pure hit of joy. Yeah, it, that's that all you it is. could ever hope it's, to it's, get it, from a gig, isn't it? It's just joy. They're, they're not trying to change your mind about anything. No. And there's a place for that. There's a place for... Absolutely. For, yeah. ce- for cerebral music and... And, 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 and politicised p- music. Politicized. And, yeah, yeah. There's a place for that. But sometimes when you want a little break from that... Yep. When you want... When you want a, a kind of... When you want a bar of chocolate, mm-hmm. for example, ACDC, the kind of musical bar of chocolate. Yeah. As much as you know that they're not in, making you... Bit of sugar. They know that, <laughs> you know that they're not making you a better person when you listen to them. But there's something about it that's chemical. There's a chemical reaction to it. And... And... I've, I've, I've been... I've been, tr- I've been going through some of their songs on guitar lately and finding out how simple they are. I mean, I mean, you shook me all night long. The riff for that's two chords, really. Yeah, it's two chords, maximum three when you go into the chorus. But you think it doesn't matter that it's two chords, or most of their songs are just three chords. Because if you think what an artist can make out of white, green, and red, yeah, exactly, yeah. If you can see what a great artist can make out of those three basic colours, they can make incredible by, by the mixing and putting them in different orders and in different formations. And ACDC are like that with, with, with three chords per song. It's not about what you work with, it's how you use it. And, and yeah, and, and so just talking about drumming, it was it, Phil Rudd's still my favourite drummer of all time. What was the album that got you really switched on to them? It was probably, it was, it, it, it's, it's changing all the time, really. I, I think that how much of an ACDC fan you are can be defined by what your favourite album is. Yeah, I guess, I, yeah, yeah. When you hit that, like, peak level of hardcore yeah. fandom. If, yeah, you, yeah, say, yeah, if yeah. you say Back in Black, you're a beginner, probably. Well, dude, my first album, which is crazy, was yeah. Stiff Up a Lip. Yeah. That, that was around <laughs> the time I started as well. Because I'd always seen the logo, I was always intrigued, and I remember that album coming out, and yeah. I was excited by the prospect was that of being there. or something? Yeah, exactly yeah, around yeah, then, yeah, yeah. to buy a new ACDC album. Yeah. So it was Stiff Up a Lip, which I actually still think is a great ACDC album. I think it's a great album. I think... It, I think the criticism that's been leveled at ACDC lately is that they come up with three singles and a lot of filler in those albums. Yeah. If you if you think Black Ice, which was astonishing, eight years after Steel Bullet, a long time when yeah. you thought they were never going to bring anything out again, that's fifteen tracks long. There's a lot of songs. You could probably get away with doing ten of them really. Yeah. And make it a really good solid thing. I, I think that the, the the thing that 
people have against modern day ACDC is that they're a bit flimsy a lot of it and yeah and there's not quite what was the latest album they did I didn't I didn't like that one that much rock or bust no yeah. I just think it, it seems to be Angus ignoring advice and better judgment and just yeah. carrying on yeah carrying on when carrying on doesn't seem like the wisest thing to do and but but I I, I can understand him still wanting to go because if you think about it he's the only person who's never missed an ACDC show if 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 he's there, it's an ACDC show. If yeah. anybody else isn't there, it's still an ACDC show. If he's not, it's not it's not the thing. So I think he knows his importance in that. But but it, it, I I just think that that if you look at their recent set lists, apart from whatever's on the new album, Thunderstruck probably the last old faithful song that they do and that's 1989 1990 yeah and the rest of it is Highway to Hell Back in Black Let There Be Rock dude my yeah. album I think my number one Power Age Power Age is an unbelievable <sighs> album it, it's it, Keith Richards loves that album yeah I, I read and, and, and I was listening to it only the other day and I think it is it's it's the first album where they start to break the formula a little bit it's like a dirty blues record yeah isn't if, it? You, if it comes after let and I be... love Dirty Deeds as well. I never really appreciated yeah. that until recently. And like Rocker. Rocker's a song great like track. Rocker. You're just like, whoa. Yeah, exactly. It comes out of nowhere. And, and you know, Ain't No Fun Waiting Around to Be a Millionaire, which is a, a really characterful Bond lyric with lots of humour in it. Yeah. And musically... Ride On. What a sad song that is. I know. Like... And... and... In the lead, and then after Dirty Deeds, but Dirty Deeds has got like big balls on it. Yeah. Which yeah, you yeah, can yeah. do without. Really. Yeah, you, you can. can do without big balls. But, <laughs> but you go into Let There Be Rock and that's just a full on assault. There's, there's, it just starts and it just keeps, keeps going and it doesn't stop. And then you get to Power Age and they, they're starting to experiment a little bit more. They break from the formula. Yeah. If you look at what's next to the moon of Power Age, which is a great track. So good. That, they've, they've not attempted anything like that. No. Since no, no, they just, which was all Bond, wasn't it? It's all Bond, yeah. They they kind of know what they're good at now, and they and they've they've stripped it down to the base to, to the absolute yeah. essence of what they are. But I think on some of those Bond albums, there was slight deviations that were that were really quite interesting. Could you imagine what they would have done with him as an old man, like as yeah. an old mature yeah. lyricist and songwriter? Because he sang like he travelled the world eight times over at the age of twenty five, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Completely, and and uh, I I really love Brian. I think I think there are there are definitely some Brian songs. Well, you can't. My friend always says the singer in Airborne, who's basically like the world's number one ACDC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like anyone that says only the Bon Scott era, he's like you're denying yourself Thunderstruck. You're an idiot. Like you can't live without Thunderstruck. Imagine an ACDC show without Thunderstruck. Exactly. There are some Brian songs that I don't think Bon would be able to sing. Yeah. Not only technically, but just in terms of in terms of Brian's personality as well. Brian, uh-huh. Brian's personality was always has been, has been a kind of man of the people thing. Yep. He still wears his his cloth cap just as a as, as a kind of reference to his his upbringing in Newcastle, a kind of mining community just outside Newcastle. He wears the cap just to show that I'm still a working man like you. And Bon was slightly more flamboyant than Brian. Absolutely. I mean, you're not going to get Brian in pigtails and a dress. No, are you? exactly. You're not gonna- <laughs> I'm not going to get that, but I think that Brian's attitude is perfect on a lot of those songs. But interestingly, when I when I saw them, I saw them play with Axl Rose. I did too, and I tell you what, I thought he nailed it. I, I do as well. I thought he did a great job. I thought there was a lot more Bon material in the exactly. set list than usual because you believe 
you believe Axl Rose when he sings some of that stuff, and you never would have believed Brian. Yeah. Because there's there is a sleazy side to uh-huh. Axl Rose that was that was present in Bond, and Brian. I've met Brian. I met Brian last year at Reading, just before he did Back in Black with Muse. With yeah, Muse. yeah, yeah. And he was he was he was in, it was such a moment for me. I think it might be my favorite, yeah. my favorite meeting of anybody, just because just because he, he he seemed so far out of ACDC then. I thought I'd never get to meet him because I wasn't sure he was going to do anything else. So I met him, and when you meet people like that who've been your heroes for so long, you just don't know what to say. But I, yeah, I met him, and he was so such a nice. Genuinely lovely man, just affable and approachable, affable and 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 just just like a dad. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, it's like yeah. a kind of one of your mates' dads, just <laughs> yeah, really yeah, friendly, yeah, yeah. really nice. And you think, I, I love, I love you, Brian. And out did of, you say that? No, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but out of the three, Boy, Chuck. <laughs> out of three, out of the three, just because of my own personality, he might be the one that I prefer to go for a beer with, Brian. Just because I think Bond would be too too much to deal with, and Axel probably as well. But but. Yeah, you get Axel singing some of those Bond songs. I think yeah, they started doing Riff Raff again. Riff Raff, dude, yeah. And they started doing... What else did they do? They did a Bond one that was really left field. Did they start doing Up To My Neck In You or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, Up To they My Neck did, In You. They did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and, and that's, that's more suited to Axel yeah. and Bond than it would be to Brian. And he was actually more suited to ACDC than he is to Guns N' Roses yeah. at this stage in his life yeah. because he can't hit those high notes that he used to hit with that band. No. Whereas that low ACDC register suited him perfectly. And yeah. what was also nice is I think that was his moment of redemption because before yeah. that tour, he was still the guy that was coming on stage an hour late yeah. and everybody was like, this guy has lost all sort of semblance with reality and he's not Completely. in touch with his fan base in yeah. any way. And then after, after he did that tour, I think it humbled him because they were like, this is our fucking show. Completely. And not on our watch. No, and exactly. he just got in line, didn't he? I and think, he delivered. And I think that if you enter, in, if you enter into that sphere, you know that Angus is on that throne and nobody's going to kick him off it. And he runs that show. And I, it must have helped with the Guns N' Roses reunion and going into that in yeah. terms of how he's going to approach it and get on with Slash and Duff. And yeah. it must have had such a positive impact on him. And then that whole trip, and you can see him on stage, and he's clearly a fan. Yeah, he's yeah, clearly, that was what was great. He's wasn't clearly it? a super fan. Yeah, and he clearly had a lot of had a lot of enthusiasm well, respect for as it. well, right? And admiration. Yeah, for... and he sounds he sounds great. He's because Brian's voice is Brian's voice when when he first started. If you hear some of those songs on Back in Black, especially like towards the end of the album, like Shake a Leg, his lungs sound huge, and he's singing right at the very top of his lungs. Yeah. And he's getting into really getting into the high register, and I think lately he's tried to recreate that high register by screeching a bit, Ooh. and it's not exactly, and it's not, and it's, and it's kind of an approximation of what he used to do. But I think I think Axel's high range is probably better than Brian's now, and I was I was just I was just very very impressed with well, it. He's a younger man, isn't he? Yeah, well, I was. But the thing is, you go and see them now, and and I've heard that Phil and Brian are doing stuff again. Yeah, I've heard that Phil and, Phil and Brian are back in Canada or somewhere recording something. But I, I've I only got to see the the, the back in black lineup once. I got to see him on the on the uh, Black Ice tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at least I can say I've seen them. I've seen Malcolm because that was a big one for me actually. Black Ice because it, as I said, it has been it had been eight years since. Stiff Upper Lib. And I remember they released Rock and Roll Train as, yeah. a, as the first Incredible single. Incredible single. And they said... That's the show opener pretty much, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And, and, and this is going to just lead us back into drums briefly because 
because they said they said on the on the on the they, they kind of trailed it. They said after the news, new single from ACDC, and I was like, oh my god, I've been waiting eight years to hear something new from ACDC, and 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 the chords start, and then you think, yeah, it sounds like ACDC, and then Phil Rudd comes in in the break, and there's and, and there's a break for a fill, for a drum fill after that opening couple of chords. And you know it's ACDC because there's no Phil. Yeah. Phil Rudd just goes whack Boom. like that on the <laughs> snare really, really hard. And then they go into it. And you think this is ACDC. And the comfort that you got from knowing that, they're, that they are unchanged. I mean, that, that's what they go off now. They've stopped doing the exper- experimentation side of it like they did in the late 70s. And they just know what people want now and they do deliver it. And it's just nice to just let that to let that wash over you as well. But the Phil Rudd, Phil Rudd whacking a snare when, I'd like to say, you know, other drummers, I'd like to say lesser drummers, would probably do something like that, yeah. Phil just whacks it because it's all that's needed. And he's my favourite drummer now, Phil Rudd, because it's actually quite difficult. If there are videos of him on YouTube uh, live and it's just a single camera on Phil... Smoking used as well, right? Just bag hanging out of his mouth. Always (laughs) smoking. Always smoking. Looking. I mean, just real concentration. There's no showmanship in Phil at all. No, just a beast at the back. An absolute monster, yeah. And and you look at him and he's got so much swing to his drumming that you try and play along with it and you're actually killing yourself because you think he's playing a lot faster than he is. But if you watch him, he seems to be moving his his, uh, right hand, his high hand, much slower than you think he is because he's really just whacking it, yeah. swinging it, really, really, n- not, not frantic wrist action. Yeah, yeah, the, t- yeah. the type of drumming that, that Chris Lay did when he, he went into the band, he tried to play a bit too fast and he tried to, he, 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 he just tried to make it a little bit more of a kind of polished heavy metal sound more than a rock sound. You get Phil and he's swinging it all over the place, not playing fast, but playing really hard. Always coming in with the beat at the very last second. Like, he'll really make you wait for the beat. And if, if you take the drumming on, yeah, that's the, the rock and roll train. It's perfect. Slower than you think it is. I, th- I think that most great drummers are slower than you think they are. Well, Thunderstruck is one of the few fast ACDC songs. Most yeah. of their songs aren't fast. They just almost seem to be mm. because they're so, like, life-affirming and... Exactly. ...rousing. But I think that, I think that it's great having Phil there because Phil... That, that, people say Charlie Watts is the perfect drummer for the Stones. He might not be the perfect drummer, but he's the perfect drummer for the Stones. Or Keith Moon, great example. Or Keith Moon, yeah, yeah, great example. They, they're the best drummer for the bands that they're in. Yeah. And it was only when Phil took that leave of absence from like 83 to 95 for Ball Breaker that they started doing songs like Heat Seeker that are really fast. They, they, got, they got Simon Wright in from Manchester, believe it or not, to play... On, uh, for those few albums and Heat Seeker's really fast but you'll never get Phil playing Heat Seeker live because he he just doesn't want to do it yeah because he probably can't do it because it's not his thing but when you when you hear the, the sound of those drums in that band you know that there's nobody else for the job really I think dude let's wrap it up by just bringing it full circle what was the name of the film you made with Andy Black and Ben Bruce Oh, that was uh, American Satan. And you're the drummer in that band, right? In the rock band? In no, I'm, band. The ma- not... I'm the manager in Are you that the band? manager? Yeah. Right on. So in that film, I haven't seen it, but I wanted to talk to you about Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. Because my, well, I wrote my dissertation at university on the Clockwork Orange, the yeah. novel. Yeah. And um, 
I just adored that story as a kid growing mm-hmm. up because of the film, first of all. Yeah. And his, I mean, It as well, which I later discovered, <clears> but his performance in those two films, I still think is the single greatest, as we were talking about earlier, anti-hero yeah. cinematic roles yeah. ever. And I do feel like because he was so good, especially in Clockwork Orange, that he then was kind of typecast as the villain for the yeah, rest of his career, sadly. I think so. Wasn't he? But did you get scenes with him? Did you get to work with him? I got a lot of scenes with yeah. Malcolm, yeah. Funnily enough, it, it comes more full circle than you think. Okay. Brian Johnson's a massive pal of Malcolm McDowell. Really? Yeah. I think they were going to write a musical about Helen of Troy together <laughs> or something like that. But but yeah, uh, working with Mal- Malcolm's... In... in, in kind of entertainment and in, in, in you know art for the want of a better word you tend to like people who are nothing like you because you can't because you're a fan of theirs because you can't see how you could ever do it in the same way that, that a lot of actors and a lot of a lot of actors have a lot of respect for musicians and musicians have a lot of respect for comedians and actors because it's so far out of your world you know how basically what, 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 what another actor of your type does. And you like them, but you don't necessarily... Um, you're not in awe of them because you can kind of see the nuts and bolts. With somebody like Malcolm, who exudes such a danger and such a, such a darkness to him, he's so absorbing. In American Satan, he's so absorbing. And he's so absorbing to even speak to because, because there's an unpredictability to him. I like actors that you're terrified of but only because what they might do yeah not because that lingering menace yeah not of what they're gonna do but because of what they're just on the verge of all time and it's just a look in the eye isn't it it's more more than a physicality oh yeah he's yeah malcolm's not not a kind of big guy when he did clockwork orange he was kind of a small guy but but there's there there's a real menace to him and a real there's a coldness to him as well. And of course, but, but, but very, very funny as well in terms of his performances. And, and as a bloke, he's very funny. And that makes it, that playfulness makes him even more terrifying. But it was amazing to have him on, have him on set because just when, just when we started filming, I was going through a huge Kubrick obsession. Just by chance? Just by chance, yeah, yeah. really, yeah. Dude, Barry Lyndon is my number one Kubrick film. Barry Lyndon's an, an incredible film. I, I think that it's, it's fallen out of favour now because, because a lot of people don't really have the attention span for it. But every single frame of that is like a painting. It's exactly that. Every single frame is, is, is like... And that, that's, that's, that's what makes certain directors so great. Uh, Kubrick's one, and Terry Gilliam's another one. In terms of you get, they get their frame... And they have a decision and an, an opinion about every single square inch of the frame, and that's that. that the, the, the high point of that is Barry Lyndon in terms of nothing happens in on, in that frame by chance because he's so obsessive about it. He won't let anything happen by chance. And, and it's all those long, slow zooms. Yeah, incredible. And I, I, just, I just wanted to know more about. I wanted to know more about Kubrick because I think that I would love to work with Kubrick just just as a challenge. Because, because actors, they either come out of it saying he tortured me to death mm-hmm. or it was the best experience of my life or somewhere in between usually. So you got to ask Malcolm, did you? Well, I, I, I did, but I, before I was thinking, you know, Clockwork Orange was quite a long time ago and, and maybe he doesn't want to be constantly talking about <laughs> Clockwork Orange because he's done so much since. And yeah. 
and I broached the subject quite tentatively one day and he's very very open to talking about it because I think he's very very proud of it yeah and very uh, very keen and very proud to be associated with Kubrick and very keen to talk about that and and I and he's still Kubrick's biggest advocate it, it, it occurred to me and we kind of bonded over that and I, I, I got on really well with Malcolm. He's, uh, he's a, a real, he's a real professional at the game. Like, like, like he's, he's not formidable, but he doesn't suffer fools gladly, which, which, which can, he can come across one of two ways. Either they just don't suffer fools gladly or they're just quite rude a lot of the time, but bright. But, um, Malcolm was, was, yeah, just, he, loads of fun and so, so inventive in the same way as, as Jim is. You think that, they don't have to audition for stuff. Yeah. They're just brought in for stuff because people know they're going to be good and, and they can basically do what they want. They're not, they don't have to take direction because most directors are quite scared of actors like that anyway. So they can be suggestions, but they don't have to. They can just, they can just phone it in if they want to because their name alone will elevate this to a, a new level. But no, he was very, very, very playful and very inventive and... And proper actors are like that. And that's, that's what we've talked about this, this whole thing. If you, if you can maintain the passion for it, the way Jim has and the way Malcolm has, then you're sorted because you can bring that passion to any project that you come up against. You can bring that same passion to uh, a play as you could be to you know, a blockbuster. And hopefully, by its extension, to, to life. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what it's all about. You're lucky enough to be doing it anyway. And you know we keep revisiting the same the same things, but it all ties in that that you're so lucky, and you should you should never let it get boring. You see, it, although the pressure goes up, and I spoke about as soon as I got Game of Thrones, I was I was there was certain a certain elation that went from from getting the part and and knowing that I got my first job and life was going to change slightly, but that elation didn't last long. Before I started thinking, I've got to do a job now. I've actually got to do a job and I've actually got to reward all of these people who've had a decision in my cast and I've got to reward their faith in me. And, and that's, that's when the work comes in and that's where you decide, as we've said, if you want to be an actor or not. But if you do and you decide that you can deal with all that, you should take every single day on set as a, an opportunity to learn a bit. And I think, I think, I think you know, they still are. They... Jim wanted to be in Game of Thrones because presumably he's never done anything like it either. Even though he's done so much, he thought he'd learn something from doing that or gain some satisfaction from doing that or it'd be a fulfilling thing, fulfilling thing for him to do. The same with Malcolm and, and American Satan. So if, you, if you're open to those experiences and you, you happen to find yourself through luck or judgment doing something that you want to do, your life's sorted really. Dude, this has been one of my favourite podcasts oh, I've ever done. Thank you, mate. I've enjoyed it's it been too. An it's been lovely. Treat. You ain't getting off that easily, though. Final question. Yeah. What can you tell us about season eight? Season eight is going to be well. Well, the one thing that I can tell you about season eight, and I think, and I think it gives you some kind of indication as to what it's going to be like, is that it normally takes us six months from from usually we used to do June till Christmas with two units, so two scenes being filmed separately every day, which means if we were doing one unit, it'd be a year. So two units uh, taking six months to shoot 10 episodes. 
on season eight, we've took nine months and two units, sometimes three units, sometimes three units to shoot six. So it's nearly half the amount of episodes and 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 fifty percent more time. So yeah, so it's a, I think that tells you all you need to and know. That's it. <laughs> I think that tells you all so you need to know about our longer work. episodes or more episodes, but basically it's going to be coming home in style. It's not. It's not necessarily longer, and certainly not necessarily more, but just the biggest. More to play with. The biggest, not in terms of length, but just in terms of content and yeah. spectacle. The biggest episode you've ever seen. Boom. Yeah. Respect, dude. Thank you, Thanks mate. so much for coming on the show. Loved it. My pleasure. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.